Robert is only a sick little boy, she thought. Lord Nestor is a man grown, stern and suspicious. Robert was not strong and had to be protected, even from the truth. Some lies are luck, Peter had assured her. She reminded him of that. When we lied to Lord Robert, that was just to spare him, she said. And this lie may spare us, else you and I must leave the Eyrie by the same door Lysa used. Peter picked up his quill again. We shall serve him lies in Arbor Gold, and he'll drink them down and ask for more. I promise you. He is serving me lies as well, Sansa realized. They were comforting lies, though, and she thought them kindly meant. A lie is not so bad if it's kindly meant. If only she believed them. Welcome and hello to History of Westeros podcast. That was an awkward intro. <laughs> the <laughs> quote was good, but me here, I'm as awkward as usual. With me is Ashea and welcome Chloe of Girls Gone Canon slash Drunk, A Song of Ice and Fire History. It is awesome to have you back for such a fun topic. Thank you so much for having me. I really don't know if maybe I'm typecast, if this is just, I mean, Radio Westeros had me and Haley from Drinking Podcast Brooklyn on, and I'm just like, hmm. <laughs> well, in this case, your name is Lies and Arbor, so how can we not have you on the Lies and Arbor Gold stream? I mean... Just... I'd be offended if you asked someone else before me, <laughs> necessarily. I don't know. No, I'm so, I'm happy to be back. Thank you so much again for having me back. What have you been doing lately over with Girls Gone Canon and any other projects you want to <sighs> shout out? God, with my life. Um, <laughs> just today during work, I completed a project where I charted 29 mentions of Arbor Wine throughout the main series. <laughs> I put that in a spreadsheet. There's a link you guys can play with if you want. It was fun for me. I'm never going to go in that doc again. Um, <laughs> quarantine's great is what I'm saying. Now, we just finished Jamie. So at Girls Gone Canon, if you aren't familiar, please come check us out. If you're looking for a new podcast to love in your little lineup, uh, we would be so humbled for that. We just finished doing Jamie. We do point of view chapters one point of view chapter at a time. So we just did Jamie's chapters from the very first till his last in dance. It was very emotional to part. And I know that your Valerie Redises, we've had a little bit of, a little lap over here and there, which has been really fun with Jamie. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I do. I mean, second the recommendation for Girls Gone Canon. I am a listener myself and y'all do some great work over there. It's a great way to approach the material doing each POV one at a time because you can really get immersed in it. It's a different way to approach a character. And we love these characters so much. So being really focused on one character is because of the scope of George's work. That's a lot. Even one character is a lot. So it's really good. Yeah. We do lightning rounds in between, which kind of break it up. We get to summarize kind of what happened in the last handful of chapters from chapter to chapter. Uh, you can have like eight chapters between them. You can have one chapter between. Sometimes it's a little easier of a refresh. Sometimes we have to go back and read a couple chapters and bring some stuff out for our research. So we're doing that. Iris Oakheart is our next POV, Ooh. but that's one chapter, <laughs> you might say. Yes, it is. Not it's the longest one week. Hmm. Yes, moms need a vacation, you know? Yeah. So we're going to come back with a new point of view. So Tune in this Friday to our new episode and you'll hear who the new point of view oh, is. Oh, I was about to ask, yeah. but if it's a surprise then, then we'll have to wait. Maybe to I'll in. tell you guys. To see, <laughs> see, off the record, off the record. Right on. 
And you guys are doing his dark material. I mean, his dark Zolorak materials. (laughs) Yes, his dark materials has been going really well. We are finishing the second book in the original trilogy. We've done, covered some of the side material on our Patreon at patreon.com slash girlsgonecanon, where right now we're doing one of the books of Dust, which is kind of a prequel sequel series, but not. Philip Pullman says, no, it's not. Uh, but it is. So it is, I'm going to tell you. And that's been fun, though. So we're covering La Belle Sauvage, the first book that's kind of almost a prequel of that. And so check that out if you want, if you're into his dark materials. I did not read it growing up. Eliana, my co-host, did. So she got me kind of to fall in love with it. And now I've read everything there is that I can get my hands on and she's catching up. So that's fun. Oh, wow. So you like passed her, huh? <laughs> yeah. Student surpassed the maester in this for sure. <laughs> that's great. Well, you guys make a great team. I'm glad you're teaming up on a, a whole other fandom as well. That's really cool. So let's give a couple of quick shout outs. And it looks like we got a couple of... Uh, Friends sending super chats. Stan Rixian says, hello, beautiful friends. Thanks for doing this. Actually, it says for Neds, which I like. Hello, beautiful for Neds, <laughs> because I think of Ned and a beautiful Ned. That's a good, that's a compliment. Yes. Thank you, San Rixian. And be sure to check out San Rixian's art. I, all of you by now are familiar, at least with the name, but you may not have checked out her website, which if you haven't, you are in for a treat. We've got our good friend, Jeff Gnarly, the long snapper, history of Westeros's first sword, always leading the way. And we have a couple of Dragon Rider friends. We've got Telenius the Talon, King of Gagasos, Rider of Telerius, a red dragon with scales, horns, and talons of midnight black. Showing off some new artwork, I think. And Hunter of House Black Cloud, the Storm Runner, King of the Sky, Rider of Horanicon, the Windworm, a dragon with scales of brilliant platinum silver, horns, claws, and fangs of pure white with eyes the color of diamonds. A fire. That sounds cool. I encourage y'all to pour yourself a glass. I'm going to do this in front of the microphone, microphone so podcaster people can hear me. Ah. Prove it. Yeah, okay. Real street cred. Oh, yeah. That's, the sound. That's that sound. It actually sounds amazing. <laughs> cool. Yeah, unfortunately, this is not Arbor Gold because I can't afford Arbor Gold because it's really expensive, but also because it doesn't exist, but also because I only had red wine in the house and it's happened to be Game of Thrones red wine. So I was like, well, either I can go out and buy white wine or I can use Game of Thrones red wine. And I was like, well, let's go with the one that allows me to stay home. Oh, wow. Look, San Rixian added a comment here that we must shout out. She says, discount code for her store is HOW for History of Westeros and G- Girls for Girls Gone Canon. All the more reason to visit there. I recently got, my household recently adopted the Stannis shirt that she uh, has yes. and the Night's Watch shirt. I wear that one with pride. I almost wore the Night's Watch shirt today, but I went for a, a more reach appeal. <laughs> The North, the North remembers is certainly my favorite of hers. I'm, I'm special. I feel special because I have one of the, one of the ones that she didn't repeat the color on. So I feel special whenever I wear it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think we probably have some limited edition ones, all of us, if we pulled together. I bet we do. Yeah, we probably have some a nice, more. a nice combined collection if we were to go that route. <laughs> so socialize an- the shape. Yeah. <laughs> so announcements, real quick, just two. Uh, we no longer have the quote unquote worry of Valar Reredus being unfinished when Winds of Winter is announced. So uh, that, my friends, is a good reason to take our first official drink of the uh, episode. So we will be doing Dunkin' Egg as part of the Reedus. That is what we're going to add on to the end of it. And it's going to be a great way to bring Sean back into the fold. Sean, Yeah, right. Isn't that cool? He hasn't been around in a while. He's been adjusting to 
life in Colorado. He moved up there and got uh, married to Rita of the Copper Main. Hey, Rita. And they're doing great up there. But of course, like everyone, their life has been interrupted by the real world. And it would be cool for Sean to get back on the podcast. So that is the plan. But without any further ado, let's get into Lies and Arbor Gold. I suppose it's fair to say it's a bit of a verbal motif, light motif, uh, a sense, but it's a little unusual in that it's an object. I thought about it and I couldn't think of anything but one other example where you have a thematic pattern that's that recurs. There's a lot of those in A Song of Ice and Fire, no doubt. But as far as an item that signifies something fairly specific, the only other one I could really think of was the blue rose indicating Liana. All the others are more like concepts or ideas or themes. Is there anything that I, anyone else could think of? I wonder if commenters or Chloe or Ashea, if you had one that yeah. I missed. I'm... The closest thing would be an audible, right? Would be like the bells, the ringing of the bells or Ooh. the tick that like John flexing his hand is another one that's kind of similar. That tick, that kind of traumatic tick. That's a good idea. Yeah, the tick. That's why I didn't even think of that one as a potential category. That's a really good one. I was trying to think of things like uh, one thing we, we pay a lot of attention to in our reread is the, the mantras that a lot of characters seem to have. Brienne's is... I seek a maid of three and ten, you know, and, <laughs> and Jamie's is mm-hmm. Lancel and Moonboy and Osmond Kennelblack for all I, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, but those are just constant reverberations within their head. And that's not necessarily a clue that something's going to happen. That's just something that's always with them. Um, so that is a little unique about like with the Blue Rose, if, if there's a Blue Rose present, you know that maybe Liana's ghost or I, the concept of Liana is, is hanging around. This one's a little more vague because deception is a lot broader than a form of, than a person, than a specific person. But that is the idea with Lies and Arbor Gold. It's mostly associated with Sansa and Cersei. There's quite a few others it comes up with. It is the fanciest wine in the world, even in Slaver's Bay. The ultra-rich atop their brick pyramids drink it. So it has brand power, but it also gets you drunk. Getting people drunk to make them more compliant is a theme as old as human existence, right? I mean, that's requires little explanation. Alcohol is an ancient thing. People figured it out long ago. Same goes for bribery, right? Getting, giving something of value to get what you want from somebody. Pretty simple. Or just getting them to not interfere. Bribe, I'll bribe you when you look the other way. In literature and life, sweetness is associated with deception. And um, in Arbor Gold, the concepts are beautifully and wickedly combined. All the empowerment, the flattery, the seduction, the corruption. Real quick for me, we're going to explain how we came into this topic. And then I'm going to ask Chloe the same. I was perusing Westeros.org back in the day, as was my won't. And I found a thread by a poster named Apple Martini, who is a frequent poster over there, well-regarded. And it was a post on, she titled it, well, look what I found. And there was a bunch of clues about lies in Arbor Gold or about Arbor Gold, the wine. And every time it's mentioned, there seems to be some sort of deception going on. And what's funny is I was rereading this thread a few weeks ago and discovered that I was like, is this the original thread that, that I was in, that I, that I'd seen back then? I was like, nah, this must be a different one. And I, I, oh, that was a brain fart because after, uh, by the time I got to page two, I found several posts by me <laughs> in the same in this thread. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay. So I have been in this thread. And so it all kind of came back to me. And I remembered trying to get an episode made back then in 2013. It just didn't happen. This was when History Westeros was really new and I was, I didn't really have a approach for topics, but it seemed like a good idea. So here we are seven years later. Now, Chloe, what about you? Your name is Lies and Arbor. So clearly this is something that stuck out to you. Please tell us your name origin story. 
long time ago, this ruins all a swath nerd cred. You know, like I'm like, oh, this is the roots. But here we are, VH1 behind the podcast, right? <laughs> so Lies in Arbor Gold. I don't remember where I read it first. I know it could have been on Reddit. It could have been someone... Because let's be real. I, I used to do a lot of stand-up comedy and it's parallel thought, right? Like there's how many people, millions of people have bought these books. Mm-hmm. So like... Thoughts not as original as we think it is, you know. Some of us feel like we sit on our high tower with our right theories all the time. I am one of those people, very right all the time. And it's not my fault. It's just how I am. Here I am thinking but, I'm uh, red threads that I've already been in. I mean, yeah. Right. No, and that's the thing. It's parallel thoughts. So, I mean, I think a lot of theories, some of the best work in the community comes out of people putting ideas together, right? Mm-hmm. It's a beautiful synergy, magic. And I know I don't know where I read Lies and Arbor Gold first. I started off reading Aswaf and getting into Tumblr, <sighs> the Sansa Tumblr community, mm-hmm. if you can believe it, folks. Uh, and I think I've come a long way. Thank you. I think I'm a much more fleshed out character myself <laughs> now. Uh, but I think I just really love that theory and I needed a new name. I think my name was like the littlest bird or something on Tumblr back then. Mm-hmm. And I needed a new name. And then I, I started writing meta and stuff. and. It just stuck. And on Twitter, really old lore, if you and I have been following each other a long time, you might remember it used to be lies in Arbor Goal with no D because it's a 15 letter limit Um, for Twitter usernames. I do remember that now that you mention it. One letter away from lies in Arbor Gold. And I just kept it that way for a while. And that's why I changed it to lies in Arbor after a while. And I just streamlined it on almost everything. Um, Modernized. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. So (laughs) that's, that's the big story. I ruined everything. The illusion is shattered. <laughs> shattered. Well, we're all the richer for your A Song of Ice and Fire education and glow up. So <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting too, folks. There's some a little more meta before we get into the specific examples, because this is not something George had fully detailed early on. He definitely approached it with wine equals deception, but it was more of a vague, seemingly more vague. This may require a little more research, but the phrase Arbor Gold specifically doesn't come till a storm of swords. And then it starts popping up a lot. As you'll see throughout this episode, we've got a lot of associations with some of the biggest plot lines in all of the story, some of which are still quite unresolved. But it seems like George was getting started with this on a in a different way. And he sort of expanded the concept or maybe tightened it up. And for example, Arbor Wine is referred to in more generic terms prior to A Storm of Swords, but seems to have some similar themes. For example, Chloe, you found a couple of very specific examples that would be appropriate to bring up here. It's it's really apparent that it wasn't a shtick when he started out per se, but I think George was utilizing it as a device as in general, a symbolic device, right? Like Arbor Red was very popular in a Game of Thrones and in Clash of Kings, uh, much more popular than later on, if you kind of pay attention. I feel like Arbor Red is not drunk as much. But even as early as Eddard 10 in Game of Thrones, where Robert offers Ned the cup of vintage from the Arbor, it's not named if it's red or gold, but I think it still counts. I think one-upping the lies in Arbor Gold theory to say wine has 1,080 mentions on its own in this series, and it seems to signify a political event. Uh, Its significance or importance is always tied to something. Like, 
Sansa and Joffrey on the Trident or Daenerys' would-be assassination. In Eddard 10 in A Game of Thrones, Robert says, do you know what Catelyn's done in taking Tyrion? And Ned immediately lies and says, everything she does, she does at my command. Yet Robert just poured him a cup of gold, a cup mm, of Arbor Gold, you know? I mean, nice. it's Arbor Wine. We don't know, but I think it's symbolic. I think alcohol, when it's something that's a very strong, significant subject in the story, it seems kind of like it's, I don't know, treachery, you know, some sort of deceit is at play. Yeah, that is very true. I think you're right. It's not just uh, lies in Arbor Gold, but it is more of a theme associated with alcohol. But today we're going to focus mostly on the explicit mentions of lies in Arbor because there's enough of them to fill an episode. But this is also a bit of a, maybe a lesson for all of us, not just y'all listening, but for us podcasters too. When you're rereading or hopefully reading a new book later, you can be on the lookout for this. It'll probably help you navigate some of the scenes and understand some of the subtext. You may even be well ahead of the game in some cases when you, especially if you see mentions of Arbor Gold in The Winds of Winter, you'll be ready. And at the end of the episode, we're gonna, we've got a few comparisons lined up, including a bit on Shade of the Evening, which is kind of an opposite, but also a few cases where like, kind of like this one that Chloe just mentioned, where it's probably Arbor Gold, but not specifically mentioned. And there's going to be good reasons for why it's not called Arbor Gold. For example, in one case, we've got one with Dunk. Well, Dunk grew up at Flea Bottom. Why would he know what Arbor Gold tastes like? So it's part of it is a class thing. And that is relevant to the whole pastiche here of how the wealthy, a lot of times this is a, a toy for the wealthy, thus a corruption tool only for the wealthy. But occasionally when offered to people of lower status, it has a lot of power as well. But we'll start with Sansa. She is perhaps the most important of the characters associated with Arbor Gold. Mm -hmm. And she presents sort of a, an opposite to... Cersei, in which case, uh, for example, that opening quote, Sansa was quite adamantly stating in her monologue there that she doesn't believe these sweet lies. Just, if only I believe these lies. So Sansa is breaking free from that line of thinking, whereas Cersei is sort of hmm, leaning into it. So let's have a quote here. Sirs, I know you must be weary after your ascent. Rooms have been prepared for all of you to spend the night, and food and wine await you in the lower hall. Oswell, show them the way, and see that they have all they need. He Nestor. turned to Nestor Royce. My lord, will you join me in the solar for a cup of wine? Elaine, sweetling, come pour for us. A low fire burned in the solar where a flagon of wine awaited them. Arbor gold. Sansa filled Lord Nestor's cup whilst Peter prodded at the logs with an iron poker. Lord Nestor seated himself by the fire. This will not be the end of it, he said to Peter, as if Sansa were not there. My cousin means to question the singer himself. So Sansa grasps all this fairly well, that she's being lied to, and that also that she's not interested in this. She's not interested in the comfort of pleasant lies. She was that. Certainly when Sansa was introduced to us, she was m more so that description than anyone. Very much her head in the clouds, thinking about stories, riding in a wheelhouse with the shutters closed, not seeing the world, all that. But that is very much gone. Sansa now mocks, almost, well, maybe not mocks, but pities that style of thinking, kind of like with Marjorie's cousins when they're all talking about all the knights they're going to marry and how bravely they're going to fight in the battle. And she's just like... And it reminds you of Catelyn with the Knights of Summer. She's very much following in her mother's footsteps. We've basically described the outskirts of 
what lies in our what Arbor Gold is as far as a wine, as far as a product. Obviously, it comes from the, the Arbor, and it's the best wine in the world, according to pretty much anyone. <laughs> but in world, yes, as we've said, it's a variety of types of deception, whether it's flattery or bribery or assassination or it's corruption too. You're telling someone you're worth it. You're saying, I'm a powerful friend. I can afford to serve you this wine, this expensive thing that is temporary and et cetera. It's really neat. So you've got some old school notes here on mythology that I think is super a super great way to start off here. There's a lot of mythos involved with alcohol, right? Because if you look back in Norse mythology, Greek mythology, uh, even reading things about Christianity, there's an importance of alcohol in almost every story or fable that's presented. There's Odin, considered god of alcohol. Of course, we know Odin, but mead was considered the drink of the gods, right? So anyone in Norse mythology who partook in the fermented or honeyed sweet juices was considered scholarly or a poet. It was always a necessary part of formalizing treaties, land deals, marriages, marking funerals, wills. We really see this best worked with Sansa in A Feast for Crows. We shall serve him lies in arbor gold and he'll drink them down and ask for more, I promise you. Both Sansa and Littlefinger are playing different parts here, right? Littlefinger has acquired the poison, which he uses to cover up his trail. The shine of it all is in distraction because Arbor Gold, all that glitters is not Arbor Gold, right? It's the finest vintage, but look at Littlefinger. Not only did he exploit King's Landing when he was there for every single dragon he could get out of it and more, he's exploiting the veil the same way now. And that is what is being hidden beneath the wine that he's granting his guest. Sansa, as you mentioned, she's not a little girl anymore, right? She's not locked up in Magor's Holdfast. Uh, she's smarter, she's freer in the veil, and she's learning. She gets this thought, and it's it's kind of empathic, it's compassionate. She thinks, why did she feel like weeping? It was good that Nestor Royce was with them. Were they all lies, she asks. She's aware of what Peter's doing, but it's shrouded by the whimsical fancy of Arbor Gold, the flashy vintage. In a way, Peter making Sansa pour the Arbor Gold is once more tying her to him as an accomplice, just like what he did with Joffrey's death by having her framed and tied up in it. That was an Arbor Red, right? Mm. Which, very uh, very close, but death, blood, uh, metal. This is Arbor Gold. And to go back to mythology, Sansa's Persephone role, I think, is brought up a lot in the fandom, and people love to kind of peruse that, especially with the pomegranate being offered. Uh, much like the underworld and Littlefinger as Hades. But I, I don't see that Dionysus gets brought up in a more serious sense. I usually see him compared to Tyrion, right? As like the, the god of tits and yeah. wine. Yeah, but I, I think it actually could fit with Littlefinger a little bit. Uh, mm. Dionysus is thought to have two forms. His ancient one had a long beard. Men in early times, of course, wore the long beards. Uh, the younger one was more youthful and effeminate and young with those two forms. And Peter is considered to have two forms, right, with Sansa. She thinks one is the warm father kind of figure that he's trying to act like, but the other one is creepy, manipulative, wants to hook up with me, skis bag, Littlefinger. Uh, and Dionysus was kind of the same way. And that's where Sansa has landed herself by feasts. And she's in the clutches of a two-faced god who has control over means of production and wine and fertility of the lands. It's very interesting. Very well powerful. Said. Yeah, that's really good. Yeah, that's really on point. It's true. There's a lot of Greek myth influence in general uh, throughout the books because that's a big influence on our culture. But George is, is a fan of the myths. 
I like this take on Dionysus in particular because it's true. Like he's left off as kind of a uh, a joke, but it's true what you say. I've never thought about comparing him to Littlefinger, but that is a really good fit. The beard. <laughs> yeah, that little <laughs> goatee, right? <laughs> so let's move on to a, a section, a subsection of Sansa discussion here that is lies and arbor taxes. This is a familiar form of deception. I think we're going to cover a lot of different types of deception throughout this episode. And this one is the shared delusion of the powerful. Here is another quote. Highgarden reaped the richest harvest. Tyrion eyed Mace Tyrell's broad belly and thought, he has a prodigious appetite, this one. Tyrell demanded the lands and castles of Lord Alistair Florent, his own bannerman who'd had the singular ill judgment to back first Renly and then Stannis. Lord Tywin was pleased to oblige. Brightwater Keep and all its lands and incomes were granted to Lord Tyrell's second son, Sir Garlin, transforming him into a great lord in the blink of an eye. His elder brother, of course, stood to inherit Highgarden itself. Lesser tracts were granted to Lord Rowan and set aside for Lord Tarley, Lady Oakheart, Lord Hightower, and other worthies not present. Lord Redwine asked only for 30 years remission of the taxes that Littlefinger and his wine factors had levied on certain parts of the Arbor's finest vintages. When that was granted, he pronounced himself well-satisfied and suggested that they send for a cask of Arbor gold to toast good King Joffrey and his wise and benevolent hand. At that, Cersei lost patience. (laughs) It's swords Joff needs, not toasts, she snapped. His realm is still plagued with would-be usurpers and self-styled kings. But not for long, I think, said Varys unctuously. That is Tyrion Three, A Storm of Swords. So as you can see why that would be paired with Sansa, because this is around the time when they are spending much time together. So first of all, there's a lot of obvious lies that they all are agreeing to here, that they all have a, as I said at the beginning, a shared delusion. And it's in some cases, it is a shared delusion. In some cases, it's more of a party line where they all know it's not true, but they say it because it helps them maintain their power. For example, calling Joffrey good or Tywin benevolent is... <laughs> I literally wrote bah ha 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 in the document here. And only 30 years of no taxes? That's what it says. It says he asked only for 30 years remission. of. The, can you imagine what your life would be like if you had 30 years remission of taxes? I mean, that is a lot of money. <laughs> I will drink to that. I'm just going to pour this for that. <laughs> In fact, I'm ready for a refill too on that on that account. Let's see here. Did someone say taxes? <sighs> so among this group are several lords who are potentially friends in the reach, meaning those potentially switching over to young Griff, Aegon the Six, whatever your preferred nomenclature for that young fellow is. And of course, of all people, it's Varus who says, Oh, don't worry, it's all it's uh, not for long. The wars will be over really soon. <laughs> says he who is planning to foist a whole new usurper on the kingdom very soon. Very filming propaganda. Just like, yes, the war is going to be over. (laughs) So yeah, that's pretty funny. Like that's one that you just can't possibly catch the first time. I mean, this is like the, the, the Fagon reveal doesn't come for quite some time. In fact, two full books. In fact, in real life, it was like 10 years later. (laughs) So (laughs) that's quite a big difference. So there's just all this stuff like Lord Oakheart, Lord Hightower. Like what did Lord Hightower do? Let's let's use him as an example. Um, 
Rowan and Tarly, by the way, are examples of ones who were probably going to switch to Aegon's side. Oakheart, I'm not quite as sure about. Hightower, well, they might have their hands full with Euron, who, as I said, we'll touch on briefly at the end. But this is, this is what Hightower did during the war. Sided with Renly, then didn't side with Stannis. And then so may have had some men with Tywin when they attacked the King's Landing. And this is, he gets rewarded for this? Like, I feel like lots of people did more and were loyal from the beginning. <laughs> so this guy gets, basically gets, it's basically a bribe. It's like, thanks for changing sides for us. Here's your payoff. Is that, is that kind of how you feel too mm. or, or something like that? I think so. And I'd even go as far to say like the high towers historically were awful. A, B, supported the greens, right? Right. Um, and look at them now, if that track record is anything similar they supported Renly, who was basically the first Aegon II we meet in the story. True that. So I'm guessing the High Towers are going to put what power they have left if they're not destroyed. That's the other thing. We're talking about Arbor Gold. In 30 years, maybe this podcast will be a vintage because Euron's <laughs> going to destroy those arbors. You know what I mean? Like, yep. The reach He's, is decimated. Can't wait to watch that happen. You guys can't lie to each other anymore. The wine <laughs> stops now. <laughs> How will politics go on? Maybe that's the end game of Thrones, you guys. <laughs> <laughs> it's nothing but brutal truths from here um, on out. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's interesting that it's definitely like you watch guys bang their way to the middle in these careers all of a sudden, right? During the scene, they just show up and they're like, you farted the right direction. You now get all these traitors' castles. <laughs> That's right. It's Me, a- I feel like giving you this box to live in. <laughs> yep, that's pretty much it. So there's also a good example of this with Tyrion and Sansa more directly with each other when they're forced to marry. And well, here is the lead-in quote. For their wedding night, they had been granted the use of an airy bedchamber high in the Tower of the Hand. Tyrion kicked the door shut behind them. There is a flagon of good arbor gold on the sideboard, Sansa. Will you be so kind as to pour me a cup? Is that wise, my lord? Well, no, it's not wise. This is a situation that stinks for both of them, although for very different reasons. It is awful for them both, but obviously Sansa is feeling a much different form of awful than Tyrion. And yeah, drinking's not going to help. It's, it's something that facing sober might be better. However, at first, they're both kind of set on, oh boy, this is, this is going to stink. We, we may as well be drunk to get through it. And they do both drink. Even Sansa like tries to gulp down some wine. And of course, it doesn't help her feel better. It just makes her feel a little nauseous. Same with Tyrion. He doesn't feel better. He's been drinking all day, as is kind of common in A Storm of Swords. He's drunk half the time in that book. And no lies that either of them can tell. No wine, no lies. Nothing is going to make this okay. And that is kind of what they eventually come around to. And Tyrion's like, wait, we could not do this. (laughs) And uh, yeah, so what do you have to say about this scene, Chloe? Yeah, that's a great way to think about it. I, I think this passage has even more reach. Uh, ah, nice. When <laughs> you consider <laughs> uh, <laughs> when you consider in Tyrion's last chapter, Tyrion three, so it's like eight chapters before Sansa three. So that's why I think this goes really well with the chapter before and with the stuff we just talked about in Feast. Um, yeah. We're seeing Arbor Gold brought up while doling out honors, right? So Arbor Gold is brought up while good King Joffrey's victories are being doled out with that Lord Redwine asking for the 30 years remission of tax. Uh, I mean, this is your, your trading wealth right now. That's what these men are at the table. They're trading wealth 
Cersei snaps at this and she's like, Joffrey needs swords, not wine and toasts. Probably needs some good therapy, in my opinion. <laughs> uh, in comparing that and what happens in Tyrion 3, so the Reach, to break it down, offers aid to the Lannisters, which they need. We know that. Cue Cersei pushing them away, haha. Uh, the Reach has been significantly crippled in taxes that Littlefinger placed on their very productive economy, wine. The Reach gets one over on the Lannisters because the Lannisters are in need and they get some of that economic agency back in doing so. By the end of the ordeal, they offered a toast to their king that they support, quote unquote, with Arbor Gold to cover up that this was an entire political deal. This is just the pieces are moving. Tyrion then marries Sansa in this chapter, which is a heavy political deal, similar. It could lead to further land, grants, and power for Team Lannister. Once more, the suggestion to cover up the lies that led to this power is brought up. For Sansa, her wedding to Tyrion isn't just both of them guzzling wine because they're in crappy situations, though. For Sansa, she is the political deal mm -hmm. in Sansa 3. Tyrion 3 shows us that political deal in broad, bold terms with a tangible money and property focus. But when it comes to Sansa 3, it gets dismissed so easily because Sansa is that tangible capital. She says it herself in that chapter. Then she remembered what Dantos had told her in the Godswood. Tyrell or Lannister, it makes no matter. It's not me they want, only my claim. There's our girl wising up for sure. No doubt. She nails it. I mean, that is 100% accurate, isn't it? And, but what does she do about it? But she just has to learn and get better and not fall for this stuff anymore. And that is what's happening. And Littlefinger is, doesn't realize how smart she is. Doesn't realize that she's breaking free of this line of thinking. And he, he thinks she's still right there, I think. But uh, he's wrong. The way this is all slid under the radar and the way these like really, really powerful people swap vast sums of wealth on very, on sometimes large things, but sometimes very small things, very minor matters. And these are staggering sums. It's, it's hard for us even to fathom how much money and wealth comes from these lands because they're some of these places we never visit, we never see them. And heck, we're not people that rule vast tracts of lands. We don't have firsthand experience with this in the real world. Like, I don't know what it's like to own a thousand acres of, of wine growing, of grape growing, you know, like that's, uh, no idea what kind of economics goes into I that. I think the word you're looking for is like vineyard. Vineyard. Well, see, I'm having too much vineyard myself in a cup <laughs> and it's affecting my vocabulary. So I see San Rixian comments that wine and blood are connected in mm -hmm. Catholic Christian myth. That's very true. And, and George, of course, being raised Catholic, one, one would expect that's in his, uh, in his brain, one way or another, conscious and subconsciously. So let's move on to Cersei, since this scene had Cersei's complaints and that we focused on and, and uh, discussed around. So at the first meeting of her new smallest council, we have this line. We have Dornish red and arbor gold and a fine sweet hippocrass from Highgarden. The gold, I think. I find Dornish wines as sour as the Dornish. As Meriwether filled her cups, Cersei said, I suppose we had as well begin with them. On one hand, you can see why she would pick the arbor gold over the thing from Highgarden or the thing from Dorne, because she doesn't like either of those things. But really, the, the real symbology, I think, is that she is choosing to be lied to here. She is choosing to hear sweet words. And that is very much reflected in her, her Ares-style council of lickspittles and yes-men, people that tell her what she wants to hear, people who won't push her when she says, no, I don't want to hear that. Because one person who's telling her things that she doesn't want to hear is, say, Kyburn. 
And Kyburn just backs down every time. She's like, I don't want to hear that. He's like, okay. Pycelle may be a, a small exception, but Pycelle is one of the few people on that council that she had nothing to do with appointing. And she thinks quite often about getting rid of him because, you know, he's not a yes man, even though he could be an ally. So this is, yeah. this is a really interesting way to go. Do, would you agree with that? Or do you have more to add to that basic uh, assessment of, of Cersei's council? No, I think she, uh, her, one of her biggest flaws, she doesn't look as, at people as people. And Littlefinger outlines that. I'm sure it'll come up here, but Littlefinger outlines that to Sansa that, you know, some pawns have their own wills. Some mm. of these pieces decide they want to move and Cersei doesn't think that these pieces do. Well, what gets Cersei imprisoned? right, by the faith, because she doesn't think these pawns are going to do anything. And I think that's something even in this line that might be foreshadowing. I'll let you in on some some writing stuff going Uh on. I'm writing an essay. (laughs) It'll come out someday. Mallory Sanrixian is my motivation because she's making some neat art for this essay. Uh, So if she finishes, then I have to finish is what I told myself. (laughs) (laughs) It's hard. Writing's hard. All right, go Sanry then. (laughs) Right? Yeah, I know. She is, she's really carrying the torch for me right now. So go buy some of her art and her work because she deserves it. In this line that Cersei says, says, I find Dornish wines as sour as the Dornish and chooses the gold. But in the Winds of Winter, I I think that she's going to do quite the opposite. She's going to choose the Dornish because the Dornish are on their way to the capital, as we know, a different swill, right? Choosing a different swill for once because the Dornish are on their way to the capital and pretty soon Arbor Gold's not going to keep working. She's got a tolerance Mm. to those Arbor Gold people, it seems. That's a good point. Hmm. Uh, Not to come. I mean, George has really proven that some of that whole uh, kind of fetishization of the Dornish people, really with Ares, he he hammers that home, no pun intended. <laughs> uh, he hammers that home. And we see that already with Cersei and Tyena Merriweather. Mm, yes, we've definitely got a section for Taina in here because she's a yeah. perfect example of Cersei being misled and just walking right into it and loving it. <laughs> like She's like, I love these sweet lies. Cersei's counsel really reminds me of something of the opposite, meaning Stannis. Stannis, in a lot of ways, would be a reasonable pick for someone who's the opposite of Cersei in a lot of ways. But they have an interesting almost parallel here that they both have eschewed noble blood as a criteria for a small council. Normally, that's something that is a big deal, that you only have noble people on your council. But their version of merit is hugely at odds here. Stannis chooses people based on what he sees as merit, which I think more people would probably agree with Stannis' version of merit, though certainly not 100%. But Cersei quite clearly just picks people that will tell her what she wants to hear or that are loyal to her. Um, She gets angry at harsh truths and turns away from them, while Stannis will still get angry at harsh truths, but he, one could argue that he tends to face them. Again, not all of them. I think he gets maybe too much of a reputation in that regard, but he does face a lot of them. And this is reflected too with beverages. We've got a beverage quote here that fits really well with Stannis. Robert could piss in a cup and men would call it wine, but I offer them pure cold water and they squint in suspicion and mutter to each other about how queer it tastes. Stannis ground his teeth. Some of this is interesting that Stannis just doesn't get it. Like, yeah, Stannis, people like sweetness and, and being told what they want to hear. He doesn't, to him, he hates that, but, and he rejects it. But he also doesn't understand why other people do it. And I think that's part of the thing with Stannis is that he understands the dishonesty of, of mankind 
uh, or understands that dishonesty happens, but doesn't necessarily understand why people lie or kind of in the same way he doesn't understand weakness. He's, well, he's iron. That is his description. With Robert, it's interesting too, because Cersei associates Jamie with Robert at one point, says you're looking more and more like Jamie, which is very ironic because she's the one acting more and more like Robert. And of course, looking like Robert isn't, there's nothing compared to acting like Robert. And so Cersei's very, being very hypocritical there. But also, this beverage theme could apply to all the Baratheons. If we go to Robert, he wasn't really about being lied to. He was more about turning a blind eye. He was more about drinking until he could forget and drinking anything. He would drink red wine, beer, ale. Of course, I'm sure he liked Arbor Gold too, but he probably just didn't appreciate it. He probably just, it's just another means to get drunk and to forget and to be blind. What do you think about Robert here? He certainly wasn't drinking for the taste. You know what I mean? And uh, who is, let's be honest, but um, you just get to an age where you're like, it's too much to drink for the taste. Too much sugar, you get a hangover, you want to sleep and you can't. It's a lot. Anyways, Robert had to get up, maybe sometimes sit on the throne, puke a little. It's a lot. And it's a good point to bring his vices into this. I almost forgot Robert existed because he died. Spoilers. Uh, there's a mirror in the way Robert's perceived when Catelyn sees Renly in Clash of Kings too, especially for that golden idea, the golden stag, the Baratheon gold. We've been discussing the Arbor gold in a political sense as capital is something glittery and distracting, a lie or a front. And Renly is kind of this personification of Arbor Gold. He's a golden stag wrapped up in the tendrils of the reach, right? Their thorns are dug in, even in the way he dresses. Small wonder the lords gather around him with such fervor, she thought. He is Robert, come again. Renly was handsome as Robert had been handsome. Long of limb, broad of shoulder, the same coal-black hair, fine and straight, the same deep blue eyes, the same easy smile, The slender circlet around his brows seemed to suit him well. It was soft gold, a ring of roses exquisitely wrought. At the front lifted a stag's head of dark green jade, adorned with golden eyes and golden antlers. Uh, That's the Baratheon sigil wrapped in a high garden. And when we look at Renly's rule and how it rings false in the end, right? Uh, Even with how he's used at the Blackwater as a false image to evoke something to get Mm -hmm. the people's morale. He is the Arbor Gold of the Baratheon group. So, of course, Robert wouldn't be representative or used of that, right? Despite that Edward mention, I think it's a, it's a stronger concept when evoking Renly. I think so. That's a really good take. And we could also borrow from Donald Noy, who said Robert was the true steel, Stannis was iron, Renly was copper. And copper, the way Donald Noy describes copper, is flashy and pretty, but not worth all that much at the end of the day. <laughs> yeah, probably a migraine in the morning. Again, <laughs> if you don't drink enough water, you know, or get enough sleep. And if we're calling Renly kind of the Aegon II of the story, the usurper, like the first egg two, Aegon II loved his wine. And as we'll talk later, that's how he died. That is true. He did die to getting poisoned. Yeah, good call. And this also is uh, very applicable to the concept of some of the other characters we're going to talk about later. So we'll come back to this. Hold, the, hold on to this idea, folks, the idea of the different characters cast this way. Also, let's look at a particularly large family. The phrase, of course, have to get involved here. Two castles can mean two faces. Now, it's not maybe what you'd expect. The Red Wedding didn't have Arbor Gold that I know of because they seem to not spend much money on the 
guests that they were planning on killing. It's <laughs> notable at the time how bad the food was. There was lots of alcohol, but it wasn't the quality stuff. However, a different fray was involved in serving Arbor Gold. Do not discount this man, Lucian, Kyburn said. Last night he feeded 30 of the most devout on suckling pig and arbor gold, and by day he hands out hard bread to the poor to prove his piety. I mentioned it's a fray. You all probably know it's a fray. But nobody mentions in this scene that Lucian is a fray. Not only a fray, but a, an older fray who's you know, kind of close to his dad in terms of age, like one of the oldest ones there. He's showing two faces, I suppose. Lavishness for the most devout, the ones who are going to decide who the next High Septon is, unless, you know, the High Sparrow comes in and just takes it all, which is what happens. But hey, <laughs> this was before that. And winning over the poor with simple bread. Now, I ask you this. We're told that Arbor Gold is ridiculously expensive. Which costs more? Arbor Gold for 30 or hard bread for thousands? I don't know, but I would, I would bet the hard bread for thousands might be cheaper. Certainly money better spent either way. Yeah, it depends on who you're buying the hard bread from, right? And Good you point. look at the reach. They went to their Jimmy John's on the corner. They're like, day old bread, corporate, <laughs> let's go. And they bought it all for half off. Like, that's the thing is, that's their resource. So yes, they still had labor they had to pay, but they already pay their farmers minuscule for labor. Great like, point. you think labor's counted in back then? No, it's not. These are the small folk. They're poor people. No one cares about them. Yeah. It's something to think about. Like, that's definitely cheaper I don't know. It's something we keep coming back to with like Littlefinger, who was in charge of kind of this economic disruption in the first part of the series there. And Tywin as well, who also was a big part of that destruction when you look at the decimation of the Riverlands. Anyone that puts more energy into decimating a land's resources and people, but claims they want to lead and are just doing what's better for the better good of everything are wrong and they're villains. I want you guys to write that down. I want you just to... So like Tywin and Littlefinger, bad. You know, like put it... Little sticky note. Bad. They're bad. B-A-D. Um, but this is something everyone discounts in this small council meeting. And like when we are introduced to the story, you're like, ah, the Justiciar does this. The Master of Horses in charge of this. The Master of Arms would do this. You learn what these roles would do. You play CK2 and you're like, I'm sending my guy over here. Go make some peace, you know, go make some relations happen. Uh, Kyburn straight up says, I wouldn't discount this. I'm a traveled ex maester And this is the faith meeting and starting their big uprising and pushing back against the crown. Whether Lucian wins or not, he doesn't. He's from Walder Frey's second marriage. So like as many phrases there are, He's in the OG first half of Walder Frey's <laughs> tree. Like, no, he, he's now off and in the running for Septon and he doesn't care about that, but he had a swan mother. So it's likely he has a good amount of influence. The Holy, even though they set aside their families, we see how well that goes for some of them. Tyrion 9 in A Clash of Kings, not a cast, just finished their really extensive episodes of Tyrion 9 and they tore the last High Septon apart. Oh, yeah. Literally, he was torn apart in that <laughs> chapter. And... Yes, this later in this chapter is a meeting to get Lucian in office, but the uprising needs those doors to open whoever's in charge. And they make that clear because he is nine votes short of becoming the new High Septon in Cersei 6 after this, which again, Cersei does not listen and they force the most devout to then pick Septon. And this is kind of similar to that overall blindness of the Tyrells and the reach with Cersei. It reeks of Arbor Gold showing up, performing charity to win the small folk. Cersei's lost King's Landing and Feast and she doesn't even know it. You know, even in dance, she still doesn't get it. 
And even immediately after Lucian's brought up, she then fantasizes about how Orane Waters looks like Rhaegar for three <laughs> paragraphs instead of paying attention to any of the religious stuff, which explains why she makes bad choices regarding religious groups in King's Landing. It's it's kind of an aside to say, but I love that about Cersei's chapters because it enables them to be so chock full of information. You've got the real thing happening, which you could focus on, but Cersei decides to daydream about something else, which is a whole new topic, yet still an interesting topic because, you know, Rain Waters is interesting too. But yeah. <laughs> it's like, whoa, well, where, do we, where do we go with all this? I have this theory after we just read these Jamie chapters and I haven't written it out or really explored it harder than just whenever we were talking about Jamie, but everything Jamie says that Cersei should do throughout Feast when he's on the road and in Storm, I theorize she's going to do the opposite in The Winds of Winter. Oh. If she has not already done the opposite, wow. which she has on many of them, like he'll be like, I think Cersei's going to do this stupid thing. Or if I was her, I'd make sure not to do this thing. And like the next chapter is always, I'm going to do this thing. That is a good point. And this is a pretty good segue to our next section here, which is still on Cersei, but it's another perhaps precise example of how Cersei immediately reacts to news that is concerning. And you can see that pretty much the first thing she does here is to try to deny it's real or to make up other possibilities rather than focusing on what seems to be straightforward truth. Willis believes that they did not follow the coast, said Marjorie. They made the voyage out of sight of land, sailing far out into the sunset sea and swooping back in from the west. More like the cripple didn't have his watchtowers manned, and now he fears to have us know it. The little queen is making excuses for her brother. Cersei's mouth was dry. I need a cup of arbor gold. Same. <laughs> if the Ironmen decided to take the arbor next, the whole realm might soon be going thirsty. Stannis may have had a hand in this. Balin Greyjoy offered my lord father an alliance. Perhaps his son has offered one to Stannis. The quote continues with Pycelle being like, wait, what? Why would he? That doesn't make any sense. <laughs> and yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't. It's completely not. It's, it is nonsense. It's like, why the heck would they do that? Why would Stannis and Balon? Wait, what? I don't. <laughs> it doesn't. But why not just believe what's being told here? She just immediately leaps to, oh, more like they weren't guarding the place properly. Like, where does she get that notion? What? What? Where does she have the idea that the Shield Islanders are slackers? I mean... It's completely made up. It's a lot of projecting. She's just like, my life is so bad, so their lives have to be 20 times worse. <laughs> yeah, because she's, she's... That is actually a great point, because she's constantly thinking about how she's always being balked and people don't do what she says. And it's like, if they would just do what I say, everything would work out. And so she's projecting that, oh, they're not doing... You know, they're not following their leaders either. They're also having... They also have failure within their organizations. They have the same yeah. problems with people obeying that I do. But they, they don't really. <laughs> that's really good. So you have some notes here about Cersei as Cersei. Mm, that's good. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. It depends on pronunciation. Some people go with the Greek, the Kirke. Kirke, or, yeah. uh, It does help us Cersei. distinguish here. <laughs> it is. It is. But we'll just, we'll just keep going. I like Cersei or Cersei. So Homer's Odyssey. Don't know how you feel about it right now, Aziz, but I hope you're buckled in. I'm ready. Be ready. <laughs> hold on, hold on. The goddess. Let's, uh, oh. let's go with the old. Oh, are you got a pour? You got a... Oh, there we go. Yep, there okay. it goes. Okay, now I'm there ready. it goes. All right, good. Tuck in, story time. So Circe, the goddess, is depicted in Homer's Odyssey as this beautiful enchantress isolated on a dense island where 
docile lions and wolves prowl around her home. Very, you know, mm, lions and wolves, kind of you say. Mm. Yes, yes, lions and wolves. And she lures Odysseus and his crew into her home with song and plans to drug them, to shapeshift them into pigs. Long story short, <laughs> it went from zero to hundred real fast. <laughs> pigs, you say? Pigs, pigs, yes. So they get saved by the bell. And by the bell, I mean Eurylochus. He shows up and he's like about to go in. He's like, no, I think there's treachery. He warns the rest of the people. Hermes also hops in to save Odysseus, who eventually is able to free his men after a year of capture and pig life. I mean, this is this is peak Circe, luring men in, turning them into pigs and ruling from an enchanted castle. You know she would do that if she could, or if she's wanting to, trying to. Uh, I, I think it's just significant because Circe, literally, the goddess Circe used golden honeyed wine to commit this treachery. Ooh, that's mm-hmm. right on. Yeah, very nice. Um, it's so bad, too, because you think about, you know what's happening on those shield islands, too. You know it was a real horror show, uh, the people being treated awfully, and Circe's like, ah. Eh. <laughs> like, that, this happened whether or not the they were slack about guarding the, ma- the watchtowers. It still needs to be dealt with. And yes, the arbor, she thinks about if the Iron Man decided to take the arbor next, at least she has that thought because that is, that's true. And it is what happens next. And what's after the arbor potentially? Old Town, which that's a lot bigger of a problem than just drying up the wine, which is a pretty big problem. But Old Town, oh boy, that would be huge. So we've got a little more on Old Town later, but just to show what Cersei is not thinking of even when she gets close to it. And all this is just wrapped up in her wanting to feel good instead of having to deal with all these big problems. But, you know, Cersei, queens have tough jobs. You know, it's not about... It's, you're Again, you're not Stannis. Uh, Stannis um, realized, uh, what was that line, that, you know, he tried to win the throne to save the throne to... Cart in front of the horse and the winning the throne before... Yeah, yeah, I know about him. Cersei doesn't even conceptualize that, but she's definitely doing the that, the wrong end of it. She's like, oh, I deserve the throne. She's Cersei's like, where do I get a horse? Where do I get a cart? (laughs) What do I do with them? Can't someone do it for me? Yeah, she's like, she shows up at the throne and is like, where's my horse and cart? And (laughs) it should be waiting here for me. I'm the queen. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so here's Tyena, perhaps the, her biggest error of all, maybe. Maybe the Faith Militant, it's hard to say which of her mistakes, or which of her, which of her oblivious mistakes is the most oblivious. But this is a pretty big one. Uh, Tyena is a really interesting character. I'm particularly interested in her because, like a lot of these topics, we don't exactly know where this is going. And I'm very curious how it's going to come out. So this is a pretty innocuous little end of a chapter here. This is, we're jumping back a little bit. That was Cersei 7, and this is Cersei 4. Outside, a cold wind was rising. They stayed up late into the morning, drinking arbor gold and telling one another tales. Tyena got quite drunk, and Cersei pried the name of her secret lover from her. He was a mirish sea captain, half a pirate with black hair to the shoulders and a scar that ran across his face from chin to ear. A hundred times I told him no, and he said yes, the other woman told her, until finally I was saying yes as well. He was not the sort of man to be denied. This is more of a classic straightforward example on the surface of just getting drunk and learning their secrets, quote, and it's the, I love the line that is telling one another tales because 
yeah, there, there's probably some dishonesty in the scene too. But <laughs> she says, Cersei says in the scene, she knew a man like that. She says Robert, but thinks Jamie. And I have to think Tana probably even sniffed that out because Tana is awfully clever and insightful. Part of the reason why she's like assigned to Cersei, so to speak, <laughs> by whoever, whomever assigned her. It's funny that Cersei has given a lot of secrets to Tana indirectly or directly throughout their relationship. But this, she winkled this secret out of her, the name of her former, like this is irrelevant. <laughs> this has no value whatsoever, the name of her and former she secret. she she's so masterful at manipulating too. She's like, I am a master manipulator, Cersei Lannister, first of her name. I did it. And it's just like, dude, it's some rando that you're never going to meet because you're going to die before he even has a chance to come to King's Landing. <laughs> uh, it's, it's funny because so she's giving away a lot lot of her secrets and all of her big plans and like she she's very she's censored in the first half of the book but like by the second half of the book she's just sloppy you know she's yeah. real sloppy and she's just like giving things away to Tyena and she's kind of imposing herself more and Tyena's like oh god I'm in too deep and this felt like Cersei's first real night of friendship with Tyena like to her she she trusted her in this it was the first time since Tyena had been attending her that she wasn't like she's not gonna report this then what happens within the next chapters, Cersei baptizes her friendship in Arbor Gold with Tyena. Tyena escapes intact with her husband back to the Reach. The companionship was a total lie. Cersei taken by the faith. And it reminds me a bit of Jamie's chapters that are mm. alongside these. And he has Tom of Seven Streams that he can't oh. shut his mouth as he tells Tom of Seven Streams, like Tom of Seven Streams, knows exactly what to tell everyone. He's like, oh yeah, Jamie's going to be here. And Jamie is leaving the Riverlands and he's like, you should hang out with my aunt. She's the real boss. Hi. <laughs> and just so happens that Brienne shows up to encourage yeah. Jamie to leave the column. I wonder. How did she find him? <laughs> what do you think? Their intel is really good. Really good. It's, <laughs> no, it's no letter agency, but it's up there, you know? <laughs> So yeah, so you would say perhaps this entire companionship is a lie. It is the Arbor Gold, but it's almost in reverse. Cersei is plying Tana with Arbor Gold, but she's the one giving secrets while Tana is giving things that seem like secrets but have no real value. That is very telling. And we'll probably have more of that to come. So I, I think we've been lack we've been lacking on the puns so far. So it's time to get a little punnier. So this section is called "Lies and Arbor Golden Company," and oh this God. this touches back on Arbor, uh, Varus's comment about, "Oh, sure, the wars will be over soon." And well, here is a quote from none other than Young Griff himself describing part of his origin story. The lad flushed. That was not me. I told you. That was some Tanner's son from Pisswater Bend whose mother died birthing him. His father sold him to Lord Varys for a jug of Arbor Gold. He had other sons, but had never tasted Arbor Gold. Varys gave the Pisswater boy to my lady mother and carried me away. A Dance with Dragons, Tyrion 6. So that's a rather huge plot line with Arbor Gold, noted to be the coin that bought life for the son of Rhaegar and death for some other poor child. But it's probably not true, is it? Sorry, young Griff, but you probably aren't really the son of Rhaegar. And if you reverse this theme, if you think about it, if this Arbor Gold theme is convincing to you at all, then the placement of it here is more evidence that Aegon VI is not Rhaegar's son. It piles on the existing body of evidence that is probably pretty strong already. 
Varus and Illyria were sort of banking on Aegon the Sixth, looking so overwhelmingly awesome that lords and ladies and commons and priests and sparrows and all will want to believe he's Rhaegar's son. Very much on point here. It's a sweet, sweet lie that this kid coming out of nowhere, backed by very conspiratorial, dishonest folk, Oh, he just is Rhaegar. So yeah, they snuck him out at the last second. Yeah, that's what happened. Mm-hmm. And look how their plan is for him to swoop in and save the day, save the realm from all these awful things happening. And that'll help make everyone believe he's really the son of Rhaegar. It's, it's really selling the lie along with the story. And gold, the Golden Company part, they don't need it for, for it to be true. The Golden Company doesn't care. They Like... Illyrio says, a dragon is a dragon, or Varus, whoever said that line, a dragon is a dragon. They don't care if, if it's true or not. They just, it's going to work for them. It's going to get them their goals. John Connington, however, does believe it. He believes it well. Now, no Arbor Gold was used on John Connington. He's a rather sober man. But there are lies around his death. Remember that everyone was told that he drank himself to death. On top of that, we've got a really cool reverse parallel. He uses the cheapest wine possible from the cellars of his family castle to conceal his grayscale. And the cheapest wine possible is kind of an opposite of Arbor Gold because that is the most expensive wine possible. I think that's pretty clever there by George doing that. Um, Even if it may not have been intentional, I will go ahead and count it as if it was. (laughs) What's your take on all this? Even Tyrion has something to say about that too. Later on when he's in that crew, he actually goes looking for wine and he offers it right to Penny and the wine that he has is like piss water wine. He's like, it's no Arbor Gold. Oh yeah, it's closer to piss yeah. than Arbor Gold. You're right. Oh, very good. Yep. Yeah. It's the it's a very similar thing. So that's great. He's really actually kind of etching out the wine available in that plot. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> uh, nice. George really pays attention to his wine and I like that about him. And there is something going on here, right? Illyrio's role, not just like with the Golden Company stuff, but him in fiscally backing the entire fake Aegon scenario is super interesting because he becomes this financier of not only peddling Aegon as a king, but also starting a war to disrupt the economy and secession of Westeros, right? Like, wine is once more used as a huge political capital in Illyrio's chapters. The framework is set for Aegon, the pisswater prince, but we see it reinforced in Tyrion 1 in A Dance with Dragons before any of this. Tyrion left the fat woman to their loaves and kettles and went in search of the cellar where Illyrio had decanted him the night before. It was not hard to find. There was enough wine there to keep him drunk for a hundred years, sweet reds from the reach and sour reds from Dorne, pale pentoshi ambers, the green nectar of mere, three score casks of arbor gold, even wines from the fabled east, from Carth and Yeeti and Ashai by the shadow. Hmm. Tyrion doesn't choose the Arbor Gold for the record because he's getting drunk on kinslaying and strong wine tonight. But Illyrio has all of this wine in his arsenal. It, it means he can pick a trick for each occasion, so to speak. It reminds me of yeah. Melisandre with her different smoke charms, right? Of mm. figuring out what she's going to do. Uh, Illyrio opens his cellar and he's like, how am I going to sell this prince? While Lies in Arbor Gold is that specific trick that shows up, which you know George is flexing it now. Like now that he's like, oh, this is fun. I'm going to play with this more. Every time you see it, you know he's winking at you. Uh, But it signifies lying. I think the other alcohol and wine symbolism is just as important to think about, like Tyrion's strong wine or mold wine being popular in the North, like the Romans once used to face winter. Illyrio's a merchant, and we call him the cheesemonger, but 
Business for him is a front for the deal behind the door. Illyrio doesn't make money off of selling a block of cheese or some wine. <laughs> he sells ideas, which is what he has sold to the Golden Company. His idea is dressed like a king. It's all a king requires, and the consumers are going to buy what he's selling, hook, line, and sinker. Well said. Hell yeah. That is so on point and accurate and describes it all so very well. I have nothing more to add. <laughs> yeah, that is so true. Like, this is such a huge plot, obviously, and another example of one where we really just don't know where it's going, where, like, we have excitement built up around it. It's at a very, it's a poised on the edge of a climax here, and how Ariane's going to mix in with all this, and how Cersei's going to mix in with all this, whether Sansa will be involved at all, or who else. And yeah, it's just so very exciting. But we know that the backdrop, the setup for it all is based so much on lies. And well, Arbor Gold and things that feel like Arbor Gold or, or have similar symbolism to it. Let's move on to another sort of opposite parallel. This is a short one. It's a historical one. This one I've called Truths and Arbor Golden Rod Ring and Mask. See, sometimes you're supposed to lie. Sometimes lies are good. It's, it's one of the complicated things of life is that you rarely can deal in absolutes. For example, I don't know. I don't personally believe in Santa Claus. Sorry to any children listening, but I don't go around telling five-year-olds that Santa Claus doesn't exist, right? That's that's not cool. <laughs> Here's a similar Wait, type example. For all the five-year-olds listening, that's just because Aziz doesn't know for sure. He's just never met Santa. Yeah, that's true. So. <laughs> just so you know, you can still believe. Yes, and first, I want to preface this defending my pronunciation of Princess Daea before Ashea attacks me because I don't say it the same as her. Um, I pronounce it. I will it never because attack it rhymes. You for that. As long as you don't say Pitire. No, you're, no, you're never. Good. Or Brienne. Yeah, Brienne. You know, what George you know, none of those, initially, but you can say Daella um, how you want. That's how I say it's it. It's just, it rhymes with Paella. Oh, I in love my that Paella. Oh, yes. Da- She's Spanish. Yeah. I, I don't even know how you said it now. Know. I can't repeat it. Anyway, <laughs> go ahead. Let's hear this. All right. The matter came to a head in 73 AC. Prince Vagon was 10 years old and Princess Daea 9 when one of the queen's companions, new to the Red Keep, teasingly asked the two of them when they would be married. Vagon reacted as if he had been slapped. I would never marry her. The boy said in front of half the court. She can barely read. She should find some lord in need of stupid children, for that's the only <laughs> sword he will ever have of her. Princess Daea, as might be expected, burst into tears and fled the hall with her mother, the queen, rushing after her. It fell to her sister, Alyssa, at 13 years, three years Vagan's elder to pour sentence. a flagon of wine over his head. Even that did not make the prince repent. You are wasting Arbor Gold was all he said before stalking from the hall to change his clothing. Poor Princess Paella. Okay, I just want to say, she like spends her whole childhood in this book and she's just like, I don't want to talk to boys. They're stupid and dumb and scary. And all she wants to do is like, I don't know, ride horses and read books or do nothing, which same. And literally all it is is just dudes being like, want to get drunk? I want to marry you. Like, that's it. And this poor, sweet, sensitive girl is afraid of cats. That's how sensitive this one is. So yeah, (laughs) she's definitely not wanting to get drunk (laughs) with anyone, even herself. So the idea here is drenching him in Arbor Gold is kind of symbolism for how he should have behaved. He should have at least couched his language in sweet lies. He Or said nothing. <laughs> that would have worked too. He tells a transparent lie as soon as he's drenched, which is like, I don't care that you dumped wine on me when he 
clearly does care. Uh, later, <laughs> Alyssa will dress in male and humiliate Vagon in the yard, in the training yard, while Daea, and now I'm saying it your way, sees it all from above <laughs> and maybe grins, maybe smiles, or maybe she's afraid of that too, because I don't know. But Vagon never returns to the practice yard, which indicates he cared about being humiliated. But fittingly, he becomes the Archmaster of Math and Economics, which is designated by a ring, rod, and mask of yellow gold. Good place for a hyper-rational <laughs> dude to be. Obviously not much for ruling, not much for relationships. So yeah, stick him where he can work on math and economics. And it's, he would know how much gold, much money was wasted by dumping a jug of Arbor Gold on, on his head. So, hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I would even go as far to say that it's a made-up subject and a made-up art maestership. So honestly, it makes sense that it's colored like Arbor Gold. It's all fake. It's just fake words. <laughs> fake thing he became. <laughs> so I, uh, I just... And I think Fire and Blood, I really need to reread it. I just haven't like... I've, I've done two rereads, I want to say. Like the first one really dedicated. Second one was just lightly rereading stuff I cared about. And I think it brought a ton of symbolic wine moments. Not necessarily all Arbor Gold, but... It does make me wonder, and I'm going to put this on you two, do you think Andro Farman poisoned Arbor Gold for Reyna and her ladies? Do you think it was Arbor Gold? It's not said mm, what it was. Good theory, yeah. Very Head well cannon. could be. I, I, unless yeah. I'm told otherwise, I choose to believe it is. <laughs> yeah, there's that line in Fire and Blood. Andrew Farman was located at last in the chamber of the painted table, a long sword clutched in his grasp. He made no attempt to deny the poisonings. Instead, he boasted, I brought them cups of wine and they drank. They thanked me and they drank. So many different stories of this, like trappings of power, right, in their history. But it feels like wine seems to be a crux of many of them. Uh, Area Targaryen stealing ale and wine as an out of control, but slightly affable child. Viscera getting drunk and naked and trying to get in bed with Balin that one time. Uh, Egan yep. too dying from Arbor Red, his favorite wine, because it was poisoned. Uh, there's definitely some some vice stuff going on with the throne, and I do think it's commentary, obviously, on a vice, on a drug in real life. I mean, it's very addictive, etc. So it's interesting to see how when rich people get it, it changes. The whole them thanking me and they drank really does feel like the type of theme we're dealing with here with Arbor Gold and how they, they're being thanked for, for being deceived and, or in this case, killed. <laughs> but a similar type of, that's still deception in the form. So yeah, that is a really good one. I like that as a, I feel like even though it doesn't say Arbor Gold, there's a really good chance it would be. Maybe it's the red because of the poisoning, but hey, we've got examples of Arbor Gold and poison. Dom Tartaglia says, does this apply to Sorella? And Carl Karsnark says, no, that's Soraya. <laughs> Oh my God. No, that one is Sorella. Okay. And I'm not going to give any reason, but besides like maybe I used more than one brain cell for that one. Okay. I just decided that one's Sorella, but the rest is paella. That's the Would it be like Aiyris then for Alaris? <laughs> this is getting out of hand. Maybe that's like Spanish pronunciation and we're just going to do silent L's like Aiyris. Alex of the Roynar says, I'm moving to Sunspear and opening a new inn serving food and ale. Our name, the Princess Paella. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Lots of peppers and sausage. Mm, I'm hungry. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> with that, we reach our mid-roll. Mid We've got a whole nother half of episode to go with a lot more great examples. But real quick, let's take care of some people who deserve a shout out. 
Starting off with our Blood Riders, Vorsaki, wielder of a Valyrian Steel Arak with a Dragonbone Hilt, Khalil Kohi called Sunpiercer, wielder of a Dragonbone Bow, and Kokavo the Tamer, wielder of the Wildfire Whip, Gehenna. Also want to shout out our Queens of Love and Beauty. From the depths of Flea Bottom, Lord Ken of House Hammer has declared for Queen Carrie, Fire of the North, who recovered Dark Sister from Beyond the Wall. And a Laurel of Glory in the name of Love to Bud of House Beresford, Knight of Tolkien, and Arbiter of Scotch. From Sandy the Dragon, Blood of Queen Daenerys, and Lady of Jameson. And also a shout out to our Ironborn captains. Black Matto Stormrider is captain of the Rusted Hinge. Sir Selvis Redblade of White Harbor is captain of Trident of the North. Lord Chucklaw is captain of the Dromen Nightblood is destroyer of evil. And not the designer of the art on these maps, but the designer of the actual maps themselves, the, the material and the printer. He is, uh, check him out at phantomaniacs.com. Does a lot of great work. John Gregor is captain of the Fist of the Drowned God. Sir Kiron of Lonely Light is Scourge of the Sunset Sea, captain of Naga's Breath, a dromond armed with siphons of wildfire. Sounds dangerous. Aileen is Archer Queen Captain of the Border Collie. Crimson Kate is Captain of the Drowned Queen's Vengeance. Jasana the Just is Collector of Tolls, Captain of the Golden Gift. Lord Mitch of House Bailey is Captain of Widow's Blood. His heir is Lordling Mason of House Bailey. Beneath the Gold is a podcast focusing, focusing on lesser known A Song of Ice and Fire characters. Check them out. Prakash is Lord Protector of the Gallifreyans, Captain of the Tardis of the Seven Seas. Tempest of House Brewer is captain of the Summer Storm. And Catherine the Cruel is captain of the Kraken's Claw. Chloe, do you have anyone you'd like to shout out right now? Here we are at the mid-roll. God, yeah, absolutely. Um, I know that Miss Monero is in the chat or was in the chat, Monero TV. Oh, yeah. We were just on with Monero and AK, Alicia Kingston, and T-Baby and the whole crew doing a ginger ale chat a little bit ago. Me and my other host, Eliana. So please also check out Eliana. She has lots of great essays up on Reddit. Glass Table Girl, boom. Oh, yeah, uh, that's a good name. Um, what did you um, mean by a ginger ale stream? Oh, man. So there are these chats that those ladies do over at Monero Geek TV. Monero, Alicia Kingston, T-Baby, you name it. And they are wild. They drink ginger ale. And we did a Song of Ice and Fire themed one. And... I'm going to be honest that some inappropriate topics came up that <laughs> I can't maybe, I don't want to repeat it, you know, but it was a little wild. There was some wild stuff. Uh, Eliana loves Donkey Kong and Bowser. She would be with them forever. Hmm. Uh, she's not going to be happy that I said that, but here I am. Oh. And Okay, let's go on. We have five more sections before our outro. I'm going to read the names because I'm unduly proud of the puns contained within. We have Harbor Gold. We have Pies and Arbor Gold. We have Leos and Arbor Blackmail. We have Death and Arbor Gold. And finally, we have Lies and His Darbor Gold. <laughs> Starting with Harbor Gold, we have another example from Fire and Blood. We got some history here. Nice long quote that uh, we haven't thought about this these folks in a while, but we did a whole episode on them, and it is a fun one. Twelve days of smooth sailing out of Westeros, the Sun Chaser and her two companions were as far south as the Summer Islands, according to their best calculations, and farther west than any ship had sailed before, or any ship that had returned to tell of it, at least. On the Lady Meredith and Autumn Moon, casks of arbor gold were breached to toast the accomplishment. On Sun Chaser, the sailors drank a spiced honey wine from Lannisport, and if any of them was disquieted that they had not seen a bird for the past four days, he held his tongue. The gods hate man's arrogance, the Septons teach us, and the seven-pointed star says that pride goes before a fall. 
It may well be that Alice West Hill and the High Towers celebrated too loudly and too early there in the ocean deeps, for soon after that, the grand voyage began to go badly wrong. We lost the wind first. Sir Eustace told his grandfather's court. For almost a fortnight, there was not so much as a breeze, and the ships moved only so far as we could tow them. It was discovered that a dozen casks of meat on autumn moon were crawling with maggots, a small enough thing by itself, but an ill omen. The wind finally returned one day near sunset when the sky turned red as blood, but the look of it set men to muttering. I told them it boded well for us, but I lied. So farther west than any ship is the first claim. That's why they celebrate. Notice that the explorer of the group, the real explorer of the group, the Sun Chaser, does not drink Arbor Gold. They do not share this delusion of, oh yeah, this is as far west as anyone has ever gone. I mean, the Summer Islands were right there in the same sentence, and the Summer Islanders are known for their ex expertise at sailing. And in fact, they show it later in this anecdote. But at first, it's just... Even without this later anecdote, it's very, I'm very skeptical that the Summer Islanders haven't done this, gone far Western than this. I mean, they, I, I, if not them, then someone else too. Would you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. And I really think that I know there was some dissent in the chat earlier during this episode live. So if you're listening after to the podcast version, some people were upset that there was some Hightower hate on the stream. <laughs> and I would just like to say that the Hightower ships Drink Arbor Gold, which canonically, according to this episode on History of Westeros, which I can say as somebody that perpetuates canon weekly on the internet. Girl's the High Tower it's ships, in the name. Yeah, it's <laughs> in the name. The High Tower ships drink Arbor Gold, which probably means they're bloody fools. I'm just saying it's a High Tower thing. So the, the, the line in this quote was the gods hate man's arrogance. And indeed, they bad things start happening to the non-Sun Chaser ships the autumn moon is destroyed by either lightning or a kraken, which is, I don't know how you can mistake one of those for the other. But Lady Meredith was damaged by a whale. A whale just rammed them. Like, talk about great luck. You're just out there and a whale's like, I don't like you. I'm going to ram you because I think you're a, another male of my species and I'm going to fight you. And they end up in Sothorios, which is quite a miss uh, from where they were going. And the Summer Islanders rescue them. The same Summer Islanders who we suspect have gone far farther west than these ships had. And they're the ones who rescue them, which indicates their, their knowledge of the area. In fact, the anecdote says, we think the Summer Islanders know more about Sothorios than they let on. They probably know more about a lot of things than they let on, and especially things to do with sailing, given their expertise there. So I think this is a really cool one. It's a very straightforward because it's the only example I can really think of that very straightforwardly has one group not drink the Arbor Gold and have success where the other group does and falls victim to delusions because of it. So it's very distinct in that sense, which makes it interesting and maybe a bit of a standout. Maybe it's a bit of a flagship example. Uh, <laughs> My God. Well, how about that? <laughs> So next we have one of the more important examples of Arbor Gold, one of the bigger fun plots, also a bit gross, but interesting and fun. That is pies in Arbor Gold. Is this a concealed identity mm. or concealed pie identity? Here's the quote. Uh, the born pie identity. The Lord of White Harbor had furnished the food and drink, black stout and yellow beer and wines, red and gold and purple brought up from the warm south on fat-bottomed ships and aged in his deep cellars. 
The wedding guests gorged on cod cakes and winter squash, hills of neeps and great round wheels of cheese on smoking slabs of mutton and beef ribs charred, almost black, and lastly on three great wedding pies as wide across as wagon wheels, their flaky crusts stuffed to bursting with carrots, onions, turnips, parsnips, mushrooms, and chunks of seasoned pork swimming in a savory brown gravy. Ramsey hacked off slices with his falchion, and Wyman Manderley himself served, presenting the first steaming portion to Roose Bolton and his fat, fray wife, the next to Sir Hostine and Sir Amy's, the sons of Walder Frey. The best pie you've ever tasted, my lords. The fat lord declared. Wash it down with arbor gold and savor every bite. I know I shall. Steaming portions, <laughs> indeed. Suckers. <laughs> Savory brown gravy. Pork, you say. Oh, God. Yeah. Savory brown gravy. Ugh. It's funny how if you're not paying attention, the beginning of that is like, hmm, and then he gets to the pie. Like, oh, wait, mm, not tasty anymore. <laughs> Never mind. So this I mean, is- I don't know. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Better than before. I'm just saying, like, they probably now taste much better than they did alive. <laughs> That's a good point. So note how the wines are red, gold, and purple, not to mention yellow and black beer. But of all the ones he cites in his quote, he says, wash it down with arbor gold. By name, wash down that lie of a pie. So part of the revenge here is the death of Wendell at the Red Wedding. That's a major thing because his son was killed at another event that was supposed to be, you know, just a party. But thanks to the phrase and Bolton's, his other son, Willis, was forced into cannibalism while a captive at Harrenhal forced to eat Vargo Hoats. So this is apart from the revenge. It's very specific. Mm. And yeah. really, there's almost not a lot to say about it other to point it out and say, look, this is one of the hugest plots. And well, by now, we've gone through so many examples of Arbor Gold. It almost sells itself. It's like, well, he is selling this lie that this food is what it is. But really, it's human flesh. Whoa. Yeah. Lies in Arbor Gold is not like one of the threefold things that Ann Grohl has kind of told us about his editor, you know, saying he likes to do the threefold punch. Uh, this is not one of them. This is just meta that he's been building in over time. And I mean, he discovered after the first three books, I like playing with wine as symbolism for political dealings. And then he started going hard being like, what if a specific wine meant treachery? And now here we are. And this was supposed to be such a big, just a George waving a flag being like, do you guys get it yet? <laughs> Do y'all get it? <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yeah. So Wyman Manderley certainly shoving it down their throats. And that's another one. I wonder where that's going to go. But I, th- I feel like the rest of this plot line probably won't involve much feasting and drinking now that all the, the swords have been drawn and Wal- Wyman's neck has been cut and the, the men are out in the field. But certainly it was set up nicely by a little bit of Arbor Gold. Next, we have Leo's and Arbor blackmail, which is a blackmail is another form of deception, clearly. And I don't think we've dealt with blackmail yet amongst our examples. Maybe maybe we've touched on a little bit, but this is more straightforward, even though it's sort of tongue in cheek. It's not entirely serious. But even within that non-seriousness, there's some analysis to be done. Buy me a cup of Arbor gold, hot frog, and perhaps I won't inform my father of your toast. The tiles turned against me at the checkered hazard, and I wasted my last stag on supper. Suckling pig and plum sauce stuffed with chestnuts and white truffles. A man must eat. What did you lads have? <laughs> He's such a jerk. A man must eat. He's like, oh, it wasn't very good. But, you know, you got to eat something. What did you guys have? 
Also, interestingly, Leo Tyrell is the only golden-haired Tyrell I know of. There are certainly some that have married into the family, and maybe I'm missing one, but I think that's maybe of, of note. Now, he's got expectation of special treatment, even though he's a maester or maester in training, and they're supposed to forget their families. He's a rather strong example of how that's kind of a shared delusion, too, how, yeah, even though maesters and septons like Lucy and Frey turn up in places without their last names, well... As Cersei says, you know, they these connections still linger even when uh, officially they're forgotten. Be, he's being a jerk in a number of ways here, pointing out that these guys don't have the money to afford these things. And obviously by asking for this guy to buy him a glass of Arbor Gold, which he probably can't even afford, <laughs> he's just making them seem small. So it's another, it's an example of Arbor Gold being used as sort of a bludgeon uh, of class, but also the blackmail thing, even though it's not very serious. I don't know that there's a whole lot to say about this one. It's kind of a minor example, but maybe, maybe because Leo Tyrell will turn out to be more important. We've just gotten this character introduced and maybe he won't do much, but maybe he'll actually be somewhat important and we'll look back on the scene later with, oh, what do you have? Do you have anything to say about this scene, Chloe? Yeah, I mean, at worst, if we don't look back with some sort of beautiful, profound clarity, we're at least going to get a great death scene of his little bitch ass dying. And that's all that matters. Mm, yes, well said. Okay. Well, we have a couple more comments here from A. Crisp. Once the Citadel is gone, along with the Winterfell Library, is the next best book collection at Castle Black? Because if so, yeesh. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, there are, I mean, I'm sure there's some castles here and there that have some libraries. If Winterfell has a library, then surely like Casterly Rock has a library. But still, I mean, of course, Winterfell's was pretty much burned. But yeah, yeah. Uh, if Old Towns is destroyed and the Citadel, yeah, the, the, the idea of learning and knowledge being destroyed in Westeros is an un, uncomfortable thing that we likely have coming. Is that, uh, yeah. is, is that kind of how you see it too? Jade Compendium's at the wall, so that's great. Uh, and Danny has that great book collection, right? Chekhov's book collection. And Tyrion, <laughs> I think, has a good book collection. But that's that's yeah. going to be our source. I guess we Whatever saw Sam some with save. Arianne when she was in the tower, but she didn't The she ones didn't she ignored, them. right? Yeah, exactly. Yes, we were yes. like, dude, you've got all these books. <laughs> Why are you bored? <laughs> there was a Dance of the Dragons book right there and she didn't read it Ugh. i know it's such the biggest tragedy of the whole series next up we have death and arbor gold here is the only clear example of arbor gold used as an assassination though there's certainly other ones that we suspect but this is outright this is very much clear Ulf the White was the a dragon seed, one of the men who tried to ride a dragon in the, later in the Dance of Dragons when there was a call for such to ride the wild or formerly ridden dragons. In this case, Ulf the White got Silverwing, Alisan's dragon. So that is a notable dragon. Of course, Alisan had been dead for more than 30 years by this time, but still Silverwing was around. He's one of the two betrayers. The first was Hugh Hammer. Hugh Hammer was more the more outspoken, more charismatic, more powerful of the two, but he was killed while Ulf was sleeping. This is amazing. Ulf was such a drunk. He probably had Robert beat. He was such a drunk that he slept through the same vicious, incredibly bloody battle that Hard Hugh was killed in. And well... What does it say about a ruler or a potential ruler if they sleep through bloody battles? And though Hard Hugh Hammer had died and his dreams of kingship with him, the second betrayer remained. 
Ulf White had woken from his drunken sleep to find himself the last dragon rider and possessed of the last dragon. The hammer's dead, and your boy as well. He is purported to have told Lord Peak. All you got left is me. When Lord Peak asked him his intentions, White replied, We march, just how you wanted. You take the city, I'll take the bloody throne. How's that? The next morning, Sir Hobart Hightower called upon him to thrash out the details of their assault upon King's Landing. He brought with him two casks of wine as a gift, one of Dornish red, one of Arbor gold. Though Ulf the Sot had never tasted a wine he did not like, he was known to be partial to sweeter vintages. No doubt Sir Hobart hoped to sip the sour red while Lord Ulf quaffed down the arbor gold, yet something about Hightower's manner, he was sweating and stammering and too hearty by half, the squire who served them testified later, pricked <laughs> White's suspicions. Interesting, just interesting stuff. It just happens to be a Hightower. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Weary, he commanded that the Dornish red be set aside for later and insisted Sir Hobart share the arbor gold with him. History has little good to say about Sir Hobart Hightower, but no man can question the manner of his death. Rather than betray his fellow caltrops, he let the squire fill his cup, drank deep, and asked for more. Once he saw Hightower drink, Ulf the Sot lived up to his name, putting down three cups before he began to yawn. The poison in the wine was a gentle one. Death of a would-be monarch, Shades of Joffrey and Aegon II, as you mentioned very skillfully, though these are different wines and different people. Still, it's another example of poison in wine ending someone's life. And assassination through wine is apparently something we've seen a few times. And it makes sense. I mean, everyone drinks. Everyone, I mean, not everyone drinks alcohol, but everyone drinks. I mean, everyone has to drink, <laughs> whether yeah, it's alcohol I mean, literally, or not. the water is not as safe to drink as alcohol is, right? Like, alcohol is cleaner to drink for them than water. I think that's so funny. Uh, I mean, like, I drink it that way, but that's not how it actually is for me, right? Like, it's <laughs> that's a really good point. Yeah, like, alcohol was one of the most trustworthy <laughs> beverages, even if it was just watered wine, because... Alcohol is a surefire way of killing bacteria. And back in the day, and I mean, when I mean back in the day, I mean like not that long ago in human history. I mean like less than yeah. 100 years ago or like roughly. Cities right like now probably drink like that because they don't have water because of resources that are being held by people hoarding them who are rich. Anyways. No, uh, you're right. But... It still does happen in the world. <laughs> and when I say 100 Flint. years ago, I'm only talking about the US, but you're right. In other places, it is still happening. It's still a big deal. And it's interesting that George once more had a poisoning of a monarch. Like you said, death of a would-be monarch. Look at Aegon II. Aegon II wins, but for how long? Not very long. And I just think that's such an interesting thought as George fleshed it out in Fire and Blood because this was initially something that appeared in Princess and the Queen, right? Like before Fire and Blood, George had these casks of Arbor Gold arranged in the Princess and the Queen side story. So he obviously was playing with it even then, and he wanted to flesh the story of this betrayal out. And I'm interested to see what's about to happen in the real story that's similar to this. Yeah, right. Is some other dragon rider going to get poisoned? I mean, it's not like we have a lot of different dragon rider candidates out there, do we? (laughs) Yeah. And it's also really interesting to think about how this speaks to Westerosi morals and cultural values in terms of like facing your opponents. We see very often the line, oh, poison is a woman's weapon or a weapon of the Dornish. Here we are having like these noble lords agreeing to poison a dragon rider. And that's in part because 
Well, I don't know why. Like, why couldn't Hobart just stab the dude? <laughs> like, he could have easily killed all... This guy's a drunk. Just wait for him to pass out and then stab him. You didn't have to poison him. But still, it's interesting that they went that route. That's part of what makes this anecdote interesting. And like you say, maybe gives us the sense that it's predictive, that it's telling us a story that we haven't seen yet in The Winds of Winter, or maybe even more likely The Dream of Spring. This might be the kind of thing that comes near the end. Uh, or towards the end when people are settling the politics, when the, the wars are winding down. But how else? I mean, you can't fight a dragon rider in battle. Like that is normally how Westerosi knighthood and chivalric values would say you're supposed to defeat a foe in the field, not with subterfuge. But when, when they're a dragon rider, the whole calculus is changed. And all of a sudden these so-called masculine ideals of facing your enemies in the field are changed because actually... You feel the same way when your opponent is someone you literally cannot beat in the field. You might look for other methods too. So all of a sudden, <laughs> it's a woman's weapon makes, is, has a much different connotation, doesn't it? Especially because it's more that women are used as the vehicle by men for their bidding. Mm, you know, like, yes. Liza Aaron didn't get the idea of poison on her own. Like, that's the whole point of the plot. Oh, yeah. Good point. Sansa. Same thing, a vehicle. So more often than not, it's a woman being used as a vehicle for poison. Well said. But here's our last Arbor Gold example, lies and his Darbor Gold. All sorts of deceptions surrounding this plot line and scene. As many have noted, the plotting and playing of the Game of Thrones out in Slaver's Bay is meant to be a parallel to the same things happening in Westeros, just with a different cultural context. Hisdar is a puppet. It's notable that even in Slaver's Bay, these ultra-rich types are drinking wine from Westeros. Let's have another quote. Are you proud of that, by the way? Lies in his Darber gold? Uh, a little bit. Do you feel bit. really good about that? Better than normal because I've, uh, now I'm two-thirds can, of the bottle Can I deep. just say, Aziz <laughs> came up to me and he was like, so proud. He was like, there's so many puns in this. And he just read them all out loud to me. And I was like, you got to like save them a little bit. I you tweeted know? a bunch of them out you, too. You need, to, you need to like tell me one and then tell me another one an hour later. So you get all maximum laughs. <laughs> Aziz, darling, I think you did great. Don't listen to her. Thank I'm you. just kidding, Ashea. Listen to Ashea oh. a little bit, okay? Just a little. <laughs> okay, okay. The king crossed to the sideboard to pour himself a cup of wine, but only a trickle remained in the bottom of the flagon. A flicker of annoyance crossed his face. Miklaz, wine at once. Yes, your worship. Take Drakaz with you, one flagon of arbor gold and one of that sweet red. None of our yellow piss, thank you. And the next time I find my flagon dry, I may have to take a switch to those pretty pink cheeks of yours. The boy went running off, and the king turned back to sell me. I dreamed you found Daenerys. Dreams can lie, your grace. Your radiance would serve. What brings you to me at this hour, sir? Some trouble in the city. The city is tranquil. Is it so? Hisdar looked confused. Why have you come? To ask a question. Magnificence, are you the harpy? Hisdar's wine cup slipped through his fingers, bounced off the carpet, rolled. Like ad-libs. Did that feel like ad-libs? <laughs> yes. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> so no wine is actually consumed in the scene, to be clear. It arrives just as the dragons are seen to be loose. So it shows up by the end of the chapter, but by then they've just noticed that, oh my God, Danny's dragons have escaped. And that is mm, distracting. 
But it was clearly consumed prior, as there's an empty flagon and he wants it refilled. And that is a nice symbolic representation of everything that's gone on in Marine up to this point with his dar being a puppet ruler, the shave pate and the green grace and so many other, the harpy, just all these other political angles and, and players and power centers and people who have their different ambitions coming together and coalescing. As I said, the Game of Thrones is playing out in Slaver's Bay. And you have some really good takes here as well, Chloe. So let me turn it over to you. All right. I think there's something here. This is Kingbreaker, right? Uh, there's something really interesting here going on, and it's actually something I didn't realize, but is already set up from the Arbor Gold in Danny 8 oh. at the feast before the pits open. We get this line, wine flowed, not the thin pale stuff of Slaver's Bay, but rich sweet vintages from the Arbor and dream wine from Carth, flavored with strange spices. The young Kai had come at King Hisdar's invitation to sign the peace and witness the rebirth of Marine's far-famed fighting pits. Her noble husband had opened the Great Pyramid to fet them. I hate this, thought Daenerys Targaryen. How did this happen that I am drinking and smiling with men I'd sooner play? Ah, awareness, yes. Yes, there's definitely something really similar and dissimilar from Cersei in this chapter. Yeah. Uh, it makes sense with their initial chapters, right? Before Feast and Dance were split, when they were initially the first book, their chapters were kind of meant to juxtapose the others and contrast each other and seeing their differences in rule and kind of heavy is the crown and what goes on with the floppy ears. Uh, here they are drinking the finest wine of the arbor amongst fools, both of them. Mm -hmm. And if wine is indicative to capital and trade, that's exceptionally interesting. Isdar traces his noble Giscari lineage from several different men from the past, and he's using his now wealth, pretty extreme wealth, to perpetuate political deals with the young Kai. It's kind of akin to Littlefinger's shady work in the Vale, right? Like learning Lin Cor Bray is actually one of his, as his dar is likely working with the Yunkish here. The framework even then shows kind of that conspiracy leaking underneath. Whether or not he's the harpy is not even part of the question. He's definitely <laughs> conspiring. Yes. And when he allows him to take one flagon of Arbor Gold, it almost reads as an inventory count to me. Uh, because this is literally liquid gold, right? And it's the best for entertaining and coaxing deals out of people, as we've seen throughout the text. So it's almost like, and especially as we've been discussing that the production of Arbor Gold may be disrupted very soon, Arbor Gold might be pretty important. Yeah, <laughs> really, really well said. That's great stuff. I like the symbolism of the wine cup falling. It's maybe, I, I think of it like the jig is up, like he realizes that they're onto him, or at least that... Well, Barristan is on to him, or Barristan is at least on the right track. But since this is wine we're dealing with, we could say the jug is up, or maybe it's down because it's on the floor. The jug is down. Let's make that trend. The jug is down. That's the new way to say <laughs> this. Yeah, I don't think that's going to happen, actually. It's not going to trend, but I can try. Super chat from Silas Toms says, Hey, it's my favorite host. Don't tell Eliana. <laughs> I don't think we can conceal that from her. We, we have to tell her everything. But thank you, Silas. Silas is the linchpin, the connecting point between um, some of the Lovecraft fandom that is uh, the Lovecraft fandom within the A Song of Ice and Fire fandom. Not only have I done a panel at Con with your man, Emmett Booth, shout out, not a cast. Excellent work they do over there. Yeah. I did a Lovecraft panel with him and Silas did a Lovecraft panel with him as well. So he's the like connector. I heard that somebody actually put that Lovecraft panel together specifically to make sure they could do it. 
I don't know who did that, but oh, they seem is this pretty a, smart. Is this a connection clever. to you? Is it hmm, someone who happens to do a lot of management at Ice and Fire Con? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I didn't talk about it up top, but yes, I, I do a lot of the marketing and some of the programming choices for Ice and Fire Con. And I work pretty closely with the con chair and other people on small council. And uh, yes, that was fun. We got to arrange that. I was like, we really need that. And Silas is really good at it. Emmett's really into that. So it was a perfect pairing, a perfect little affair they got to have. And it was fun. It was a great panel. It was. And we actually just very recently talked about Silas on our podcast during the Jamie chapters when he has the Joanna uh, dream, right, of his mother because okay, Silas I can't, I can't has... with that one. <laughs> well, I wanted to bring his fun tinfoil in. Silas has a great uh, theory that is a little bit tinfoily of Joanna being alive. Uh, it leads to actually Joanna being Quaith, which I do not agree with. However, I think there are some really great meta examples about masks and stars and disappearing characters. So it's fun. You should definitely check out his blog, Gods of Terror. Yes. Okay, so now we have our, our final section. It just doesn't have a punny title. It's just other random mentions are regold and then a few other related beverage discussions that are connected. Davos only thinks of Arborgold once briefly. He thinks of a beer so good they can match Arborgold in price overseas in Bravos or Ibn, and that's it. Because, you know, Arborgold is not really a, a match for Davos chapters. The guy is very honest and straightforward. And I'm sure George, with his creativity, could make that work, but I can see why it's... Also, he's a common-born guy, so he's not down for mm. fancy wines. He's more of a, you know, cheap wine, beer kind of guy. Uh, I feel like Ibanese liquor, like, I bet they have, like, a thick, weird liquor in Ib. <laughs> it's true, there. Ib liquor. Ib liquor. Ib liquor. Ib liquor. At the beginning of the episode, we talked about citing examples where it seems to be Arbor Gold, but isn't explicitly stated to be. And so I wanted to present one example that I think is a good candidate for that to set up and help y'all maybe find other examples in the future, sort of to set the stage for that. This is comes during Joffrey's gift-giving scene. I don't really need to read the whole quote. I don't think we need to bother with that. But the point is that they're giving Joffrey all his gifts. And this is, of course... Kind of like the wedding, it's a big farce because obviously everybody knows Joffrey is horrible, even the people giving him gifts, but ah, it's a shared delusion. Tyrion is drinking the whole way through. This is a, one of the drunkest we ever see Tyrion, which is, that's saying something. This is a Sansa chapter and she's noticing how much he's drinking because Sansa is pretty observant. She's a great POV for that reason. Being observant makes for a good POV. She thinks about it. She notices how much he's drinking and she's afraid because Joffrey keeps trying to antagonize Tyrion and she's afraid of his reaction. She's like, uh-oh, what's he going to say here? Which is understandable because Joffrey's saying awful things to Tyrion and mocking him and making fun of him. But Tyrion just keeps drinking. He just keeps pouring wine down his gullet instead of responding. So he's kind of like going along with it. He's doing his best. But of course, eventually he breaks a little and says, and and this is when we have the confrontation, the confrontation in quotes, that is, of Tyrion bringing up the, the Valyrian steel dagger in mixed company to accuse him sort of tongue-in-cheek of murdering Bran or trying to murder Bran. And he says, yes, a dagger to match my sword, a gold hilt with rubies in it. Dragon bone is too plain. As you wish, your grace. Tyrion drank another cup of wine. So this is just constant wine drinking in this scene. So it's a good example of Tyrion. Ne never once is Arbor Gold mentioned, but Tyrion probably drinks 
five to 10 cups of it throughout this scene. And it really sets the stage. So it's a good example of this happening without us necessarily seeing it. It's not always clear that Arbor Gold is happening. And you've got a, an example of similar status, meaning that it's pretty clearly Arbor Gold, but at no point is it actually mentioned. And I love this one because I completely missed this. So I'm really happy you pulled it here, Chloe. Yes. And to piggyback off your Joffrey, I mean, it also, it has to be Arbor Gold. It's literally a wedding to the Tyrells. You know? <laughs> yeah, what else would they serve? They're not going to stint. Like, yeah. I mean, they have to serve lies and Arbor Gold at this wedding. That's like the whole entire thing. That's like where it comes from. It's a whole thing. Read the books. Uh, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I will. Good idea. <laughs> oh, you should check them out, Aziz. I hear they're based on a show. So in The Hedge Knight, we actually have a reference to Arbor Gold. Dunk is offered a cup of golden wine by Ryman Fossaway. Ryman Fossaway discusses a bunch of lies that people tell about certain important people in this story and then gives his truth, what he thinks, which ends up being correct. He talks about Darren the Dreamer's disappearance, where everybody thinks Darren was kidnapped by these robbers. But Ryman's like, he's probably just off getting drunk, which, okay, well, kind of. Dragon dreams and drunk. That's pretty much what's happening. <laughs> Arian is being called a prince. And Ryman is like, oh yeah, people think he's a prince, but he's a total monster. And he estimates that Arian's mad at Lord Ashford about his horse going to Lord Humphrey, but his uncle, Arian's uncle, is probably the true culprit, which he was. And then finally, the story of Arbor Gold ends when Egg comes crying to Dunk to save the puppeteer from Arian, who then imprisons Dunk while he's on these lies in Arbor Gold. Mm. Yeah. And that's not the only time. I think we hear it in Sworn Sword as well but to pull up something from Mystery Night. Dunk turned the wine cup in his hands, frowning. It was solid silver with a line of golden snails inlaid around the lip. The wine was gold as well and heady on the tongue. If wishes were fish's eye, I'd pay. Only, only you don't have two stags to lock horns. <laughs> so this is when Dunk was trying to get his things back, ransom all of his items back. And Sir Uther is treating Dunk really dishonestly while Dunk is drinking lies and arbor gold from him because he wants his stuff back. And Uther's like, I'm going to upcharge you times 10. Ha <laughs> uh, Really smart. <laughs> that is really good. That's a great catch in part because too, it's the snail uh, is really trying to seem honest. He's like, look, let me tell you the real story of how tournaments work. Meanwhile, he's talking about how he scams them on <laughs> on the regular by tricks of by you know losing on purpose or bribing the the guy who makes the matches, things like that. So I think this is a really good catch because also it's a like I said, Dunk born in Flea Bottom. He would maybe have heard of Arbor Gold, but he certainly wouldn't have had much of it if ever had it at all. And he so he wouldn't know it by taste. So it would be unauthentic for George to declare that this is Arbor Gold. You know, I mean, maybe he could have the character of the snail mention, oh, by the way, I'm serving you Arbor Gold. But it, you know, it could come up organically. But if he just mentions it every time, then that becomes a little too obvious. It kind of... Boring. Yeah, yeah. it's boring. Yeah, Overdone. Right? It's overdone. Yeah, overdone. So it's better to have it sneak in there. Partly because George is a man who wrote A Song of Ice and Fire to be reread. So if he makes everything too obvious or too clear, then we have less reason to reread. And we know that rereading provides enormous value. And this is just one little example of that and how George doesn't just spell it all out. 
There are other beverages that occasionally come up and these some might have value in doing research on. I haven't looked up much about Hippocrats except for <laughs> Chloe wrote Roos is loose here. Yes, Roos notably the drinks is loose. Hippocrats at uh, High Garden during the scene where he has dinner with Jamie and Brienne and a lot Aaron of- Aaron Hall. Uh, at Heron Hall. Yes, that's a great example. And <laughs> Hippocrats comes up a few other places, but it's never, I don't know that it's ever- I don't know that it comes up often enough to have a pattern to it, but it might. Uh, it's super sweet, which given the sweetness of Arbor Gold being a theme of swallowing sweet lies, that might apply. Do you have anything to say about Hippocrats or is it just kind of a, a topic that maybe... It's like a super sweet, heavy... It's like almost like a like a cognac or something. Like, you know what I'm trying to say? Like a yeah. brandy almost. It's like thicker and sweeter. I don't know. It's not for me. It's not for anyone except Bruce Bolton, <laughs> I feel like. And it's heavier. It's definitely heavier. Like Bruce is the kind of guy that's like, I can drink you all under the table, but I don't want to embarrass you. So I'm going to drink this Hippocrat. <laughs> Standard Bolton. We also have the fearsomely strong cider at the Quill and Tankard in Old Town, of course. Amen has had it. He thinks of it. And then we have it in A Feast for Crows and the opening scene, the prologue there with Pate and Alaris and, and all those guys, mm. Molander and, and that gang. They're having the fearsomely strong cider, which notedly the line that you never want to see if you hope a place, uh, if you like something, which is this inn had stood for 600 years and probably stand for 600 more. No, no, I, I don't think it will stand for 600 more. It may not stand for one more. Uh, and the reason for that is our final topic, Euron. He has very little to do with Arbor Gold directly, but he has some meta surrounding it. Certainly conquest of the Arbor. Ah, the jug is down when Arbor when uh, Euron takes the Arbor. Hmm. Does this mean the lies will stop? Does this mean Westeros has to face more brutal truce? Does this mean... I don't know. No, do you have anything so. to say about Euron and the, the conquest of the Arbor? And does that apply here? I love the idea of Shade of the Evening that we're about to talk about a little more in depth with Euron. I think that that's a great thing to pinpoint in in this discussion of bringing this like nega idea of Euron drinking this like anti-Weirwood. It's the exact inverse of the Weirwood, right? The colors are inverse. They're black and blue, the tree that the leaves are ground up and created this nightshade out of. And it's liquid LSD. I mean, we're all adults here, hopefully, unless those five-year-olds that we were talking about are still listening. Uh, I really, I worry about those kids. LSD, it's liquid LSD. You're going to trip your balls off and see things and be taken to all these different dimensions. And Euron lost the ability. He fell, right? He tried to fly and he fell and he was not good enough to be the next apprentice, as poor Quentin has so eloquently put in some of his Euron stuff. And he takes drugs now to recreate what Bran can do almost naturally, right? Like not counting eating his friend and all that jazz that could be happening behind <laughs> yeah, the scenes. You know, Different kind of Arbor Gold. But Euron drinks his own version of Arbor Gold to give himself these superpowers. And I, I think those trees, that black and blue in contrast to the Weirwood, is also in contrast to gold, right? It's a big contrast in the idea of this sparkly, light, bubbly gold. Yeah, and it's it's also framed really interestingly in the same scene where they're talking about the arbor, the arbor. Yeah, the arbor's got grapes. Let's attack the arbor when Euron's mm -hmm. trying to get them to go east to take the dragons. And he's like, hmm, yeah, I see. This is what they're more focused on. I'm going to have to do some manipulating to get them to go my way. 
immediately after that scene, Euron flees from the crowd and decides to, it, it's better to manipulate Victorian one-on-one rather than with a crowd around him because Victorian's easy to manipulate, but the crowd is smarter than Victorian. So let's remove them from the <laughs> equation. And he offers him the wine, the, the wine of the warlocks, which he turns down after spitting it out. You can see what's trying to happen here. He's trying to get Victorian to face these brutal truths rather than these sweet lies. However, even in me calling them brutal truths, there's, he's using them to deceive. Just like the Undying Ones did to Danny. They had her drink some shade of the evening and then they used that as a, as a means to look at this truth. Meanwhile, we're going to pull this move on you. It's like, this crystal ball tells truth and it does. But meanwhile, while you're mesmerized by these truths, I'm drawing a dagger, planning on stabbing you in the back. So even when Euron is using truth, he's using it to deceive, I think just like these Undying Ones did. So that's something to be wary of because Euron... <laughs> Even when he's dealing with truth, he's using it as a means to his own ends. I think that's a pretty straightforward statement about that guy. You know, when you think about it, and I won't do any spoilers here, so if you haven't read The Forsaken, The Winds of Winter sample chapter, not that I would ever say you should read something that's not technically published, but if you find it in your heart that you want to read it, it is a wild ride. And there's some stuff to even look at with how Euron uses Shade of the Evening there. It's very much used as a political barter just like what we've talked about with the lies in Arbor Gold and with the wine being used as a barter, he tries to use it for control over other people. We'll see that go on in Euron's plot throughout the books, I, I'm guessing. And I'm sure this isn't the last time we'll see Euron doing Shade of the Evening. No, I have to agree with you there. And yeah, I think uh, we, we do talk about the Forsaken a lot, so I think it is safe enough. And yeah, the, the whole idea of bribing people with this sweet wine versus what Euron does before Forcing people to drink this awful substance is so very opposed conceptually and thematically that it just fits so very, very well. So that is it for today. We have had almost, we hit our target almost exactly with about two hours, but we're, we have a couple of outro things to handle here. And one last quote that I think sums it up quite well, because this is not done yet. We are sure to have more Arbor Gold mentions, and I think you all are pretty well prepared for that. Now, if you've heard this episode, you've heard Chloe's great takes, you've heard our research, I think you are very well armed for this plot line going forward. So here is... The final quote of the episode, as we started with Sansa, so shall we end with her. Trust no one, I once told Eddard Stark, but he would not listen. You are Elaine, and you must be Elaine all the time. He put two fingers on her left breast. Even, yeah, why did I have to, I'm sorry that you had to read just that one line Thanks. there. <laughs> we cited that at the time we did the chapters like, why did he, he's so creepy. So he's, even now yeah. he's distracting us from our point. <laughs> We're having fun. Yeah. Even here in your heart, can you do that? Can you be my daughter in your heart? I, I do not know, my lord, she almost said, but that was not what he wanted to hear. Lies in Arbor Gold, she thought. I am Elaine, father. Who else would I be? Yeah, Sansa There's knows. your lie. There's your <laughs> yeah. lie in Arbor Gold because she thinks about it consistently through Feast. She's like, I'm not your daughter, you freaking gross creep. And he thinks she does. He thinks she's totally bought in. He thinks everything he's doing is working. He's like, oh, Sansa likes me. It's all working. She's going to fall for me. Oh, no. Oh, no. No, 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 no. Sorry, little <laughs> One of your schemes is finally going to backfire spectacularly. 
And she knows what to look out for. She knows his game. She's figuring it out. Even if he doesn't know, she's figuring it out. And now you all know too. Absolutely. Yeah. So thank you everyone for coming today. Thanks for the live viewers. Thanks to those of you who listen afterwards. Thank you very much, Chloe. You had some incredible takes today. You added so much <laughs> to this topic. I think this would have been a shade of what it was without your input. What else do you have going on? I know we talked about this at the beginning, but let's repeat that in case people forgot. Thank you so much again for having me on. I miss you guys so much. This was nice. It was almost like the real deal. Uh, <laughs> I know that we will be together soon enough after all this craziness going on with this pandemic. But cheers to yes, that. Uh, cheers to that. Absolutely. Lies and Arbor Gold to that. Definitely check out Girls Gone Canon. Yes. We are hosted on Spotify, iTunes. Podbean is where we're actually main hosted. Uh, Google Play, all sorts, pretty much anywhere you can find us. Our Patreon is patreon.com slash girlsgonecanon. We are reading A Song of Ice and Fire, point of view by point of view character. So all of the point of view chapters at once for each character and also his dark materials. We are covering all of his dark materials, inner books, outer books as we go. And stay tuned for some really big stuff happening there. We have some exciting things for patrons coming up soon. Mm. I'm not allowed to say things about it. Eliana is in the chat, as we've learned. If the mods <laughs> were asleep, I'd tell you, Hi, but I can't. <laughs> and uh, personally, I'm working on an essay about King's Landing, about a theory about uh, Marcella and what the Dornish are about to do Ooh. in King's Landing and what's going to go down. Spoiler alert, it's King's Landing. Mm. So... Uh, Chloe, sack of King's Landing They're not too. throwing her a party. Would you say that Chloe, mm -hmm. Chloe, that Eliana has you under an NDA? I would say it, but that would be illegal for me to say to you, Ashea. <laughs> she can't even say whether or not. <laughs> so yes. yes, I echo everything Chloe said. They have a great show over there with Girls Gone Canon. And I actually, I'm, this is a good thing to ask. What POVs have you finished? If you can maybe do that by memory, maybe you, maybe that's not... Yes, no, I can do this. I'm ready. Okay. okay. Eddard Stark was our first POV. Cool. Barristan, Quentin, Ariane, Sansa. Sansa went to Theon, Theon to John, John to Jamie, Jamie to Ares, Ares to the next POV that I'm not going to tell you. Nice try. And we have covered the Winds of Winter chapters for those that have Winds of Winter chapters published as well over on our Patreon. That is awesome. That's a long list. See, y'all, if you haven't checked out Girls Gone Canon, that's a lot for y'all to dive into. So cheers to them. Raise your glasses to Girls Gone Canon and Drunk a Song of Ice and Fire History. Thank you again, Chloe. Also, shout out to Apple Martini. Cheers to you, Butterbumps, Dr. Pepper, Lady M. Y'all got me started on this topic. And you can check out the original thread on westrust.org. It's called Lies and Arbor Gold. Well, look what we found. And it was back in 2013. And you'll even find a few of my posts in there. But frankly, they covered it. My contributions were minor. It was really all them. And I hope we uh, did uh, treated the subject well here today. Thanks to everyone who showed up. Thanks to y'all who came live, watched live and asked questions and joined the chat to have a good time, whether you joined us in the drinking part or not. Uh, thanks either way. <laughs> thanks to Ashea for <laughs> handling so much at once. Thanks also to Chloe for the quotes. Besides the great takes, there was the excellent quote reading. Yeah, I have to give a, an extra thanks for that because it really makes it a lot easier for me. <laughs> yes. I wish we had like Sean still living here. I could just be like, Sean, sit there and read quotes. <laughs> she does this every Sunday for Valerie Reed, reads the quotes while also doing all this other stuff. So 
again. Yay, toast to Ashea. Chloe. <laughs> toast to Ashea, though. Let's be real. Ashea has put in the work, and I would gladly take the quotes for you, Ashea. Yes. And also thanks to Claire Dox, Michael Klarfeld for the wonderful map sitting behind me, Kevin McLeod for the Valar Reredis music. Thanks to Joey Townsend and Jesse Kowal for our regular History of Westeros music. Thanks to our Benjineer for working on our sound quality. And we've got some patrons to shout out as we do our outro. Thanks again, everybody. Um, stick with us for the patrons or dip if you're ready to go. But these names are fun. Lord Mark of House Joseph is the snow in Winterfell, rider of Mazla Cartho, a white dragon with green scales, horns, wings, and talons. Our peers of the realm include the mysterious BR, Hand of the King, Lord Stephen Stark, titles, titles, Hand of Queen Shea, who is known as the best. Lord Jim the Fortuitous of Wars and Politics of Ice and Fire blog is Warden of the West. Lord George Stormsville the Cunning is Lord of the Chiliad, Warden of the East. Cabeth the Unfrozen is Lord of the Bricks and Castle Crimson Light, Defender of the Old Gods and Warden of the North. Lord Brendan Lannister is the Blood Lion, Ruler of Castle Everroar, Warden of the South. Lord James Tuttle, King of the Stepstones and the Narrow Sea, is commander of the Royal Fleet, consisting of the Narrow Fleet, led by Flagship Caraxes, and the Bloodstone Fleet, led by Flagship Prince Damon. Our king beyond the wall is Sidney Jesse, the Fallborn, Lord of Blue Spring and the Haunted Forest, wields a dagger of dragonglass and the Valyrian steel blade, Red Frost. Neither of them fall victim to lies or arbor gold. They're made of sterner stuff. Lady Sarah Connolly, the willful, is wit beyond measure, is man's greatest treasure. She's Jenny's patron. Our White Walker patrons include a ray of flint of the mountain flints captured by the Weeper, only to be raised in the valley of Milkwater, blue eyes, and golden memories. Alexander Greyblood is fist of the first man, now crowned in ice, called Silence Bringer, Wood Blinder, and the Snow of Night, wielder of the ice forged greatsword, Pale Frost. Our small council includes Lord Daniel, the sneaky Russian, master of ships, Lord Benjamin of House Hornwood, master of laws, Laura Boros, the lady of infinity, master of coin, Bloody Ben Blackwood, master of whispers. Our lords and ladies in their castles include Lord, uh, excuse me, Lady Dire Liz of Castle Naki, the Alpha Patron, Lord Dan of the Red Mountains and Castle Great Bell, Breaker of the Second Stone, Gregor of the Toasty, Lord of the Breadfort, Lord Ryan of Castle Stonegate is Guardian of the Rocky Mountain Pass, Ashlyn Winter is the Hawkside, Lady of Castle Skyfall, Lady Mikkel of Moonacre is Leader of the Werewood Protectorate Alliance, the Lord of the Halls of Castle Hillcrest is Wielder of the Valyrian Steel Machete Everglazed, Lord Bemmy Snuggle Bunny, Guardian Ranger of the Hidden Hundred Acre Werewood Duel, Wielder of Valyrian Short Swords, Glorious Morning, and Little Light Wise is Sharpshooter of the Werewood and Ironbow Laminated Longbow, Todd Von Oben. When you fear things cannot get worse, Snuggle Bunny enters the <laughs> The Bastard of Wolfswood is first forester of the old gods, sworn to House Ironwood. Listen for the silence. Lady Liana Kelly of Wolf Island is protectress of the Steelhold. Casey Stark is of House Acres. Lady Raywin of House Dillsdane is the Star Spear. Congrats on your little bean. Peter Rivers is the Pale Dragon and heir to Blood Raven. Lady Carlin Carey of Castle Stone Sharp, whose, horde is, whose horse is shod in Valyrian steel, is Lady Ryder of the Rising Hills. Lady Mora of House Stark is Archmistress of Apothecaries and Woods Witch. Her castle features werewood doors with painted moons. Charlie One One of the Desert Stormborn is the Straight and Stalwart. Lord of Castle Bradley, Guardian of the Giant Stair, Defender of the Skirling Pass, Keeper of the High Ground, Wielder of the Werewood Staff Concussion. King's Justice is Sir Troy the Steady, wielder of the Valyrian State, Valyrian Steel Blade Fate. I really feel like I'm slurring a little bit. 
Queen's Eye Council has Rebea Star Eyes, Lady of the Wee Waves, and Mistress of Ships, Captain of the Iron Shadow Cat. In the shadows, we bear our claws. Catron the Wise of House Trondheim is Master of Coin. Grand Archmaster Rennie, whose rod and ring and mask are not gold, but Quartz Crystal, wielder of the Valyrian Steel Pen, Fire and Ink. Lady Tracy the Ascendant is ruler of the Cloud Keep, Master of Laws. The Purple Lord Leo Anansi is Master of Whispers. Our King's Guard includes Lord Commander Namian of House Darkland, the Night Slayer, Valyrian Sword Onyx Abyss is his. Sir Dean the White is Knight of the Black Star. Sir Gregor Snow called Snow Bear is a Bastard of Winterfell. Vaughn of House Furster is Sigil is a mailed fist with extended forefinger and pinky on light blue field. Visenya let us hold Dark Sister once. Sir Bateman is the Dark Knight. Sir Roland de Stark is Gunslinger Knight of the Winter Kings, back from a 20-year ranging to the lands of Always Winter to protect my King Aziz. Thanks for that. I do need defense from time to time. Our Queen's Guard includes Lord Captain Commander Hama Elmanth, the Celt Sword Sentinel, and Captain of the New Dad Podcast. Alexander of House Atreides from Seat of Dune. I must not fear. Fear is the mind killer. Sir Rambo is the Knight of House Ganon, First Blood. Sir, ne- Sir Leon, not Sir Neon, of House Walker is wielder of the twin Valyrian steel blades, Fire and Ice, and the Werewood Bow Rain. Amber the Adamant is the Knight of the Mist and Mother of Squids. The Wintry Wolverine motto, we finish what you begin, and Nora Neko. Our Beard Guard is led by Lord Commander George the Golden, backed by Sir Joshua Oakhart the White Oak. The White Oak, excuse me. Lady Rita of the Coppermane. You are really struggling. Yeah, the Lady Rita of the Coppermane, the Unbound, is Dance the Fervor. I'll get through it. (laughs) Sir Jeff, Warden of the AC, Wielder of Triad, is the multifaceted beard of platinum, red, and brown. Stay frosty. Yeah, he is the beard. He doesn't have the beard. He isn't. Sir Tim Corgile is Mad Boy of the Western Desert. Last but not least, the history of Westeros Night's Watch, which is led by... Scrolling, scrolling, scrolling. Lord Commander Richard Ligerhart, wielder of Barry's Ankle Breaker, a flail with blue and silver Valyrian steel spikes motto, Go Blue. Backed by First Builder Magor Snow, aka Magor the Cool, the Fire in the Snow, First Ranger Liam, aka Sir Waiting on a Nickname, and First Steward Sir Jurion of the Torrentine called Pale Wind. Thanks again, everybody. We really appreciate the support. We really appreciate everyone who came live and everyone who listens afterwards. Extra, double, triple, infinite appreciation to Chloe for all her excellent readings of quotes and incredible takes for this episode and waiting through all these Patreon shout-outs. Always. I'm sorry? Always. Always, yeah. And we hope to see you soon. Not just you, Chloe, but all the rest of you that we hope to see you at cons and other events in the future when such is possible. Until next time, well, you know what to do, folks. Valar, reread us.